Hey Prodigies, just a heads up before we get started with tonight's episode of the Surgeon's Files podcast. We record this episode as well as our interview with Tom Payne on Monday, May 10th. Literally minutes after we finished recording, the news circulated that the show had been canceled. So when you listen, it's going to sound like we're still waiting on Prodigal Son renewal news because, well, we were. We hope it gets picked up somewhere, but if not, please listen to Tom's words about his time working on the show and let us appreciate the time we got to spend with these characters and their stories. I hope you enjoy the listen. Pod Clubhouse! Oh, Malcolm came with me willingly. Why did you do that? Don't you share the popular opinion about Martin Luther? Of course I do. He's a psychopath. An unrepentant murderer. Then why are you here? Because he also happens to be my Welcome to The Certain Files, your unofficially official Prodigal Son podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're discussing episode 12 of season 2, the penultimate episode of the season. It was called Sun and Fun. I have no idea how we got to 12 so fast. It feels like it's been a minute since we opened this. Yeah. But anyway, Sun and Fun was written by Lisa Randolph, and it was directed by Chris Greismer. So if you've been listening to the podcast all along this season, you'll recognize that this is the fifth episode that Lisa has written for the show. She also wrote Alma Mater from earlier this season. And this is also Chris Greismer's third episode directing. Um, He's directed season two episodes, Ouroboros, which is a personal favorite, and Bad Manners being the other ones. Talk about he's he's directed a full quarter of the episodes this season. So mm. I don't, Chris Greismer uh, was has been a favored son of uh, the Prodigal Son team. Uh, and you know what? He did a great job here. I mean, there is some real aesthetic work going on here. Very evocative of some horror movies and thriller movies going on here. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm really excited. And when you look at Ouroboros and you look at Bad Batters, I mean, those were both great episodes. Honestly, and this came up uh, in our interview, which I'm about to tell you about, because I think they did 13 episodes versus 20 or 22 there was no fat in this season, I feel like. There was no None filler whatsoever. episodes. Every episode had its place. Every episode was important. And it's a really dynamic way of telling a story. And I think that's why you're seeing the real premium television shows switch to the 12, 13, 10 episode season. That short season allows you to tell really tight narrative stories without having to fill time, without having to burn out the cast with nonsense storylines. Prodigal Son in season two benefited from the shorter season because I, I feel like every episode was a banger. You know, it was very interesting to to kind of come back to this and look back, you know, just reviewing for here for uh, episode 12. This has been such a tight storyline. I, I, I kind of like this limited series approach where it's literally just the core elements of the story and they're just packing so much into every episode. You literally have to pay attention for the entire time because you're just going to miss something. There's right. so much packed in. Right. And every every part of every episode essentially was important to some storyline somewhere down the line. There was very little left here except for the stuff that they intend to be left hanging. There's very little hanging. And I feel like even in season one, which as as good a season as season one was, especially for a freshman show, when you have 20 hours of a season, 
you have leftover threads. You have things that you introduced and maybe didn't go anywhere because they were just introduced for purposes of needing to fill time or needing to fill a storyline for an episode. Or to allow for entertainment, you know. Right, which which is great and fine. And, and who doesn't want more of a show? But if you're looking at a show just from a tight narrative storytelling point of view, you can't beat a well-written 13-episode season. It, it just delivers the goods so, so well. And I think Chris and Sam and all of the writers and all of the directors, to say nothing of the cast and the, and the rest of the crew, really, really executed a tight, well-told season this season. Speaking of, and I, I just teased it, you definitely want to stick around to the end of our discussion tonight, because for the first time on the Surgeon's Files podcast, we actually have Malcolm Bright himself, Mr. Tom Payne, joining us on the podcast to discuss all things Malcolm and Prodigal Son. We actually just recorded that interview before getting on to record the main episode, just to give you a little peek behind the curtain. And it was a total blast. I'm such a fan of his for such a long time. It was so great to finally get to speak to him about this show. Can I just tell you, I could listen to him talk all day long. His accent was just so lovely and lilting and his voice is so melodic. He needs to do like one of those calm sleep stories. I love those. Those are amazing. He would do so well at one of those. He definitely has a very soothing voice. And for people that are used to hearing Malcolm Bright listening to Tom Payne speak, maybe a little jarring, but you're going to get with it pretty quickly. He's got a very, very melodious voice. So. And he was just so energetic to talk to us about all things Malcolm and murder. And it was it was wonderful. And Martin. Yeah, he was great. And, and, and listen, guys, you're going to hear the episode. It, he sat with us for almost an hour. Uh, the finished interview is probably going to be around 50 minutes he does not need to stay on the line this close to the end of the season with us for 50 minutes that was totally him being super gracious on his part and just really enjoying the subject matter it's clear when you hear tom talk about the show when you hear him talk about malcolm hear him talk about his castmates filming with michael he loves this show he loves this role and i I think nothing else i think that shines through uh, our interview with him really really well All of the interviews we've done this season, the same thread that I keep coming back to is the actors we've interviewed, they love their characters. They love this show. They love the Prodigal Son family. And it really shines through when we talk to them. And it just, it's just, it's so cool to see how consistent it's been. I agree with you. Whether they're just a guest star or whether they're one of the uh, series regulars, everyone that we've spoken to this season has just a genuine joy that comes through when they're getting to talk about the story, about the characters, about their time on the show, which you can't say. I mean, I've talked to plenty of people in my time doing this and, and running Pop Culture Review. Plenty of people where they're talking to you because they have to. They're doing a red carpet because they have to. If you gave them the choice, it would not be where they would want to be. And I haven't gotten that sense from anyone that we've spoken to this season. They all just really seem to enjoy the experience, which is wonderful because as fans, obviously we enjoy the experience. But enough of that, the preamble, though, let's get into the episode. Yeah, but before we get started, you should definitely check out the Prodigal Son Spotify playlist that we've created. It's some mood music to help you as you wait the days in between this and the last episode of the season. Right, and and hopefully a renewal for season three, because if there's a renewal for season three, folks, you'll be getting 20 more episodes of The Surgeon Files in between now and then, because we're going to go back and we're going to go relive. We're going to give a rewind to season one of Prodigal Son. 
I really need that to happen. Let's give a season three so that we have more podcasts to make. That's what I'm talking about. Let's do hashtag renew prodigal son. Let's start that as the campaign here tonight. Uh, well, I think it's actually been going. It's on actually been ongoing, but we can kick it off here tonight, you <laughs> know, you for, for Tuesday. There was a theme in tonight's episode of you'll be free. We hear Malcolm and Jessica are both told this. They're they're told it by Danny. They're told it by Gil. They're thinking it themselves. Jessica communicates this basically to her children. This idea that, you know, it's kind of like a, it's a wonderful life scenario where the world would be better off if Martin had never been born kind of thing. And I don't know that that's actually true. I don't know that Malcolm at least buys that. I think Jessica certainly does believe that, but I don't know that Malcolm has bought into that. But it made me start thinking, do you think the team is actively, even if it's subconsciously, hoping that Martin actually dies throughout this process, that, that he doesn't make it out alive, that he doesn't just get put back in Claremont? It seems that there's a pretty even split, an even split, I'll say, the Whitley kids versus the rest of the cast. So I would say Gil and Jessica, even Danny to an extent, are in the camp that it would just be easier if Martin were gone. Whereas Ainsley and Malcolm are really doubling down on this notion of, you know, Martin being their dad and they love him despite what he's done. Didn't get so much of that from Ainsley, but the last episode is, is driving that, that point for me. So it's split for me pretty clearly along that line. I agree. I mean, listening to Gil talk, and we'll get into him later on, listening to Danny in the locker storage, listening to JT, Danny and Gil talk to Malcolm, you know, when Gil yells at him, he says, listen to yourself, listen to all the mental gymnastics you're having to jump through to try and make this work, where the surgeon becomes a victim, you know? Yeah, to rationalize it, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's so much going on here. I feel like there's so much sympathy for Malcolm, but I think it's almost to the point where it's not even sympathy anymore. It's almost like they're pitying him. They're treating him like this broken creature, which is very sad to see. But then you also have Jessica, who makes a really fateful choice tonight, a choice that maybe is hers to make because of what she's gone through, but she certainly takes it out of her kids' hands and doesn't take into account their wishes for when she makes the choice that she makes, which again, we'll, we'll talk about in a little while. You know, there's this whole concept of you'll be free. And there's a lot of choices being made by various people in tonight's episode. And Tom talks about actually this concept of you'll be free. He talks, he talks about it, not in this way, but he talks about in the interview, what would happen if Martin wound up dead and Malcolm never got to resolve all of his issues and, or ask his father, all of the questions that he needs to ask him about who he is and about how that affects who Malcolm is. Martin being dead is not the best case scenario for Malcolm. It certainly isn't for Ainsley. I don't think maybe it is for Ainsley. It may be the best thing for Jessica. And and maybe at the end of the day, maybe it's something that she's rationalizing is best for her children, but really is best for her because I think it is best for her. I think it is best for her and Gil as a couple, uh, those Gillica shippers out there. It's not the best thing for Malcolm. It really isn't. And Jessica, because of what she's been through, I don't know that she can see that. I, I think she's having some trouble seeing the forest through the trees. Talk to me about the murder weapon tally in tonight's episode. I have some attempted murder weapons because nobody died. Is this a first? I, I think it may be a first. I mean, this is a show that is part procedural, right? A Prodigal Son is a murder of the week kind of show. And if there isn't a murder of the week, it's usually because there's some serial killer arc that they're chasing down. 
I think this may be a first for a no body count in this episode. But I did have plenty of attempted murder weapons, though. And, and we're getting into the, the, the medical and pharmacological here. We had adenosine and fentanyl and Rivadryl as uh, attempted murder. There was air into an IV to induce an embolism on Malcolm, which is a horrendous thing to do to somebody. And I was also a little perturbed that there was no mention of the recovery of Malcolm's murder wall weapons. Specifically, I was interested in that Indo-Persian battle axe. I mean, part of me hopes that maybe he went over to Friar Pete and pried one of the four antique guns that were stolen from him out of his cold, dead hands. Because, <laughs> because you hear people say, uh, you know, over, you know, you'll click claw for my cold, dead hands. And, and in this case, Malcolm actually, I guess, had the opportunity to do that. So... <laughs> We, That'll we, be a director's cut, I think. <laughs> I, I know that there's some kind of blooper there where he's like trying to get a Christian's hand or something. Where's my Indo-Persian battle axe? Right. That's the thing that he's trying to ask him in his dying breaths, not where Martin is. Where's yeah, my yeah. Indo-Persian battle axe? That's 10th century, you son of a bitch. No Adresa, no daily affirmations, no sunshine. Man, the show teased us in the middle of the season, giving us lots of all of that. And now we're several weeks without any of it. Uh, I hope we get Adresa back at least for the finale next week. I feel strongly that they'll have the team back together for the finale because it's just going to be, I don't know, what I'm seeing online and what Tom teased out earlier. So it's just going to be bonkers. Definitely stick around for the interview, if nothing else, because at the very end of it, we asked him to tease the finale in three words, and it's totally worth listening to him explain the three. We won't spoil it for you here, but listen mm-hmm. to the interview, stick around, stay all the way through the end, because his three-word description, man, it made me confused and also super, super, super hungry for the finale to be here already. Yeah, salivating in a big way for this. But it's also really interesting to hear his thought process, because he really thought about it a while before he gave his three words he did he did he uh, yeah and he was thinking about it like out loud he was like teasing it out loud do you know do i want to go in chronological order or yes. what happens what or like it was funny listening to his thought process anyway so there was also this angel of mercy pathology that malcolm profiled uh, for for vivian for profile for, for, vivian, for yes. vivian yes let me uh let me be very clear that it was for for vivian so most angels of mercy tend to be female and they primarily use passive ways of killing such as pharmacological agents And this malignant hero dynamic to which Malcolm diagnoses Vivian with is one of three subsets of this angel of mercy pathology, which refers to, it's really, it's really gross. Um, It's a pattern where the subject endangers the victim's life in some way and then proceeds to quote unquote, save them. So some would like attempt to feign resuscitation of a patient, a victim, while knowing all along that the victim is actually dead beyond saving. But the attempt is to be seen as selflessly making an effort to save this person's life. It's really disturbing because oftentimes these are caretakers. They are meant to be our first responders, our protectors. They oftentimes fall under the categories of nurses, doctors, firefighters, police officers. Like a firefighter would be like somebody who would set a fire like arson and then be the one to like rescue on the scene and like rescue you know, people out of a burning house or something like that. And then with nurses or doctors, it tends to be more this like, you know, they would inject them with something and then try to resuscitate them. Well, it crosses the line into the hero worship syndrome, right? This idea of I'm going to hurt you so I can save you. I mean, we see it in this episode. We see when Malcolm and Ainsley go to interview Logan Zeiger, it becomes clear later when Malcolm lays out his thought process that Vivian took on his case, knowing that he was as likely to wind up paralyzed, uh, you know, and near death's door as he did, simply so that she could then do something to save his life in a 
minimalistic way. And now he treats her as like this sanctified hero. I mean, how as creepy. As a god. Yeah. I mean, she, he says, she's my hero. And, and how creepy to send someone art every year on the anniversary of their surgery, which it was so interesting to hear him say. He doesn't characterize it as the day he almost died. He said, it's the day I became a survivor. Yeah. I, I mean, Wow. He he has fully, I mean, Mr. Zyker has fully bought into exactly what Vivian is was looking to get out of that situation. You know, the yeah, he bought what she was selling. Right, sure. right. And and but that's and that's what gets her off on it. And you see it as she's trying to play it out with Martin, this recurring theme of I'm going to put people in harm's way. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to stop your heart because I can bring you back and you'll see me as an as an equal. I'm going to give Malcolm this embolism. I'm going to introduce this air embolism into his IV and then save him and then you'll recognize my skills. And it'll bind us. Yeah, it really, really demented. And it's it's troubling when the people are so, so competent. Because she is good, she can do these dastardly things that make our blood run cold because she has this confidence that she'll be able to reverse the damage she does. That is a, a high wire act to walk on. It made this episode really, really heart pounding because you never knew where the line was going to be. It's next level fucked up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So I want to talk about the end of the episode. So in the screeners that we watch to uh, to prepare for doing this podcast, to prepare for doing our interviews, there is often temporary dialogue or effects that are placed in there. There is often music inserted in the show that doesn't make it to the final episode. Every they air The episode that you guys watch, things may get changed. Now, the final minutes of tonight's episode in the screener that we received had you choose one of their most famous works, one of their best songs, Where the Streets Have No Name, cues up with about an, uh, a minute, 20 seconds left to go in the episode. And it builds. And if you know the song, Where the Streets Have No Name, it has this tremendous build where it goes through the, an organ, like a disjointed organ sound, and the organ gives way to guitar. The guitar gives way to the bass and the drums kicking in, and then the band is cooking. And then Bono comes in and his opening lines are, I want to run, I want to hide, I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. And it's very dramatic. The song itself is a very dramatic song. The way the screener airs the final 20, one minute 20, matches up so beautifully. I went to Twitter, actually, after I saw the screener, and if you, if anyone follows me on Twitter, they saw a post randomly from over the weekend talking about how I just watched the show that used this song in a way that, one, made me appreciate Where the Streets Have No Name in a way I never appreciated it before, but two, was maybe the best use of a song in a show. Why am I doing all this preamble? Because it comes up in our interview with Tom Payne that he thinks they have actually replaced that song. So we're recording this. I have no idea what song you guys are going to listen to uh, in the end song. Be just as surprised as you. Yeah. And Tom says the thing that they replaced it with, he said was fantastic, will blow you away, which I, 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 I don't doubt him. But Where the Streets Have No Name, it works so well in that end scene. Whatever the song is that they use, if it's not Where the Streets Have No Name, I suggest you go play that CD, play that song tied to the last minute, 20 seconds of the episode. And I think you're going to get a real, real experience because 
it made me have an emotional response. This is all a very long way because I wanted to come on here and talk about how well the song works. And now knowing that they, it actually may air with a different song, I felt like I still wanted to talk about it, Sheila. So uh, I'm going to piggyback on this for a second because when Malcolm says the word kill, when he says that they're going to kill you, and he, then I hear, heard the organ, I, I knew exactly mm-hmm. what that was. Yep, me too. And I was like, oh shit, like I am strapping in, I am buckling my seatbelt because I know that for the next minute and 40 seconds, I am in for it because of just how the song builds, the tension it creates, just the layering of the music. And I just, I knew what they were doing. And I was like, this is art in motion and I am here for it. Ironically, like today that we're recording this, it's Monday. It's Bono's birthday. So happy birthday, Bono, Paul Houston. Well, look at that. Uh, so, and, and <laughs> just serendipity. A, just a pro tip, don't watch the music video version of the song yes. because the music video version of the song is like, uh, it's like a short film because they're doing this whole video on a rooftop, rooftop thing. Uh, yeah. thing. And so no, you got to listen to the CD recording of it, either on uh, Best of U2, 80 to 90, or what album was it on? Joshua Tree? Joshua Tree. Joshua, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're listening to the Joshua Tree recording. I've that, seen them like 10 or 12 times in concert. I that's can... the version of the song that you want to be listening to. Yes, but so definitely cue go it do up, it. Yeah. Cue it up. Like Mike said, cue it up when Malcolm says they're going to kill you. Cue it up there. Martin gives this look. He, he's starting to do the math on do I run? Do I stay? Do I take Malcolm with me? And he looks at the door from where Vivian had just been back to Malcolm. And you'll hear the organ like kind of like start up. Yeah. Yes. And it's it, what a ride. What a ride. I've never heard a song used in a show better than that. So uh, moving on. I want to play this because I knew this was going to make you happy. You know me so well. The audio is a little misbalanced there because of the screeners and there wasn't finished dialogue. But yeah, it's the there. I think there's something very wrong with that woman. How great to have Martin making quips in this dire life or death situation. Well, I mean, when Vivian checked him in the in Claremont last episode, he was like six, not two episodes ago, 60 beats a minute. How are you so calm? So I'm glad that still in the face of traumatic situation that he's able to keep his wits about him and continue to joke. Although much like me, I think he uses humor to deflect any inner turmoil that he might be feeling. So I feel Martin on that that front. I agree. I 100% agree. He's using humor in that moment to deflect the pressure and the tension that he's feeling. But again, I think Martin being who he is, so few things rattle him, really rattle him. And this is probably the episode where he has been most rattled for the longest period of time, to the point where he he roars furiously like a caged animal a couple of times. Mm -hmm. But he also looks genuinely scared several times in this episode. Neither of these are emotions. Martin rattled or Martin, Martin rocked back on his heels is not a Martin Whitley that we are used to seeing. So there was something very endearing about hearing him make that quip at the end of the episode as he's untying Malcolm. I was like, oh, okay, he's still there. I mean, Martin is still there despite what he's been through, despite what Malcolm has been through and he's had to sit here and watch. Uh, It's something very reassuring hearing him make uh, his little funny, funny asides. I want to get into the episode uh, as we do. You know, we're not going to really review the episode. We're going to talk about the characters and what went on with them. And as always, we're going to start with Malcolm, though. We're going to do less Malcolm than we normally do, because we do talk to Tom Payne all about this episode and, you know, Malcolm as a character. Uh, So I don't think we have to go through everything. But I don't know that there's anything more frustrating to me watching Prodigal Son 
is when Malcolm has the right profile, Malcolm is giving really good evidence about his profile to back up his profile, and no one is listening to him. And we see this tonight, and we see it tonight uh, so many times. Everyone is just being so dismissive of him from the moment that he puts together the butterscotch wrappers to the headquarters where Marshall Ruiz is there and, and Gil shuts him down, you know, talking about how Vivian is involved. Do you think that the team is so dismissive of Malcolm because they think he's just gone round the bend and is super broken? Or is there something more to what's going on here? You know, Malcolm opens up the episode talking about how he is just the surgeon's son in so many people's eyes now. So are they dismissing him because he's broken or are they dismissing him because they don't longer believe him? Like he has no credibility because he's just the son of the surgeon at this point. There's many layers to this. And I think you touched upon it just in, in asking the question. He is the surgeon's son. So right off the bat, and I said this last episode, there's a conflict of interest here because it's his father, but he's also a profiler for the NYPD. So there is this inner turmoil, there's inner war that's going on between Malcolm that I think certain people are seeing for what it is, that can I 100% believe him? Because it doesn't seem like anything that Malcolm said tonight was being given any credence. He gets kicked off the case within the first minute of the show, right? So there's a couple of moments where, like when Danny's with him and he's in Claremont and he's ripped apart Martin's cell, and he found a clue, but he's also sitting on the floor and he is defeated. He is broken when he is sitting on the floor. He's he's emotional. He's spent, to use Vivian's words from last episode. But also when he's in with the team in the in the, the precinct and he's going through the profile and he's trying to get them to see what he's learned about Vivian and what he's pieced together, his hand starts to tremor. And JT's like, I've seen you do that ordering a mochaccino. Like, what makes this so different? And how they were dismissing him again. And he was so spot on. I was getting so angry. I was like, just listen to him. Even Gil. Gil was, I think, the most dismissive in how he responded to Malcolm. You know, he said, you know, Vivian's guilty of a lot of things and, you know, boffing a serial killer, which I thought was a great line. The severity of her in her lack of judgment, you know, give it a rest kind of a thing I was getting from him. So I felt bad for Malcolm on so many levels because he was just being dismissed as having this conflict of interest as being just broken and Gil thinks he's gone round the bend yeah, yeah so I, it's, it's all of that they've just lost faith in him I mean the JT with the mochaccino line and 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 Gil shutting him down and you know Ruiz <laughs> I, I mean so Malcolm sets out the butterscotch wrappers he he sets out Martin's sex fantasy from when they were in the uh, meeting room together a couple episodes ago. And just just the fact that they never really pressed Vivian at all on her involvement. She was the last person in charge to have seen Martin and Friar Pete and Hector before their escape. And they never really ever questioned her very hard. Why is it so outrageous to, to say that? For for Marshall Ruiz to be like, call me when you have an actual lead. This is the best lead you've got going. If nothing else, he has presented enough evidence. And I, this is what he says. He says, at the, at the least, this is enough to conclude that Vivian lied about the seriousness of her misjudgment of Martin and or the relationship she had with Martin. This evidence altogether that he's shown here is enough to at least warrant further investigation into Vivian Capshaw and her time at Claremont. 
At a minimum, yeah, like, let's go at, have another conversation. Right. At a minimum, right. Have a go have another conversation with her. But that, that, to say that it hasn't even risen to that was laughable. And I was like, what is even happening here? And then for her to say, you know, yesterday was a wild goose chase. Yesterday, you capture two of the three fugitives, not to right. mention tracking on Malcolm's it, profile on Malcolm's profile, plus tracking it all the way down to the apple orchard was solid intel. You discovered where the surgeon had kept his go bag, like his escape plan for 20 plus years. That's something that they didn't even have in 1998. You know, so that was all on Malcolm's back, all on Malcolm's work. How, how could you call that a wild goose chase? You turned up fucking nothing, lady. Jesus Christ. Like, you're going to, you're going to say she that. She was just he- following Malcolm's breadcrumbs the entire time. Right. Right. Exactly. For her to be like, it was a wild goose chase. You call, yeah, you cut two of the three. One is dead. One is going to give you a value information uh, probably at some point through interrogation Hector is about the process and all of that I was outraged on Malcolm's behalf but it's Thank all because you. that's that's what I was feeling I was like I was like come on guys and I think it's all just because they've just lost faith in him I think it goes even beyond pity like I said before I think it's just a total lack of faith in him and his abilities that he's either too biased or too broken to do the job anymore or at least to do the job when it comes to the surgeon anymore and that's really unfair because you would think over the two years that we've now watched malcolm work with this team you think he would have built up a little more credit with them that he could have drawn upon but i guess not and anytime that malcolm's profiles have really delivered has been when he's been under the most stress that he delivers like the knock one out of the park profile. And this is what he did it again tonight. He nailed Vivian's profile to a T and they were still not believing her. And then, you know, Vivian's up there screaming, he's a monster. But meanwhile, he's told you what a monster she is and given you proof. And they're still like, here, stay with her. Leave the budding psychopath with the actual psychopath and we'll see how that goes. So why do you think Danny is so dismissive of this sketch pharmacy that they found in Vivian's storage locker? It's almost like the team is willfully ignoring Malcolm and his profiles here again. That was exactly my feeling was that they're going out of their, it's, you know, is if, if they had a picture of someone hanging in a locker with a sign that said Vivian did this with like her picture standing next to it, pointing with like a thumbs up, they'd still be like, that's not enough. There's this clip here that I want to play from that locker scene. This leads up to, but doesn't include when they kiss, but it's so, it's so important, I think, to what. Uh, spoiler. No, <laughs> uh, it's so important to what happens in this episode and, and and what what Malcolm, I think, is feeling and what he's being made to feel from the team. Other opiates, paralytics, beta blockers, sedatives. She's a doctor. It's not enough. When will it be enough? I need you. I'm not a cop, but I have been right before when everyone else is wrong. And I'm telling you, I am right on this. We are running out of time to save him. You don't care. None of you care. If my father lives or dies. And what if he did? I'll tell you what. You would be free. What if he makes me who I am? Martin Whitney is a cruel and violent man. You 
those days. Let him go. There's a lot going on there, but let's take the first half of it because he says, when is it going to be enough? Jesus Christ, there's a, there's a whole pharmacy in this storage locker room. That's not just something a doctor keeps. That's not something that a good doctor, an honest, ethical, morally well-adjusted doctor keeps in a storage locker. They don't keep a pharmacy of opioids. That's- it's criminal. Yeah. Those are controlled substances. Those yeah. have to be monitored. They 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 are con- considered controlled substances because they have tracking numbers. Right. Yeah. For her to say it's not, she's a doctor. It's not enough. Come on, Danny. Fentanyl, barbiturates, right. par- paralytics. Why would a doctor need to have paralytics? Right. Uh, exactly. Exactly. And so when you he have says those it, in an ICU, come he, on. I think. I mean, Malcolm is 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 the fans there. Like, when is it enough? Like, you just don't care. You want him to die. And 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 she's basically saying kind of what Gil says to Jessica later on. It's the part of this. You'll be free that we talked about earlier. What if he dies? That's a good thing for you. That's what Danny's trying to sell him on here. You don't need him. He is actually an alba. Him being alive is an albatross around your neck that is holding you back from being happy, being together. Maybe unsaid is she saying being with me. That as Martin, as long as Martin lives, you cannot be happy is essentially what she's saying to him here. And she says, you know, I'm begging you, which is maybe some kind of emotional manipulation. I, I think she probably honestly believes it. I think her. Her and Gil are both coming from a place of love for Malcolm and for Jessica. And when they're saying these things, but they're not actually understanding what Malcolm needs. They're just seeing Malcolm being in pain and guessing at what he needs is Martin to be dead. But the problem is, though... They're not doing their jobs. No one is doing their fucking job here. You, you require, it takes Malcolm and Ainsley to go do their jobs in this episode. Danny only comes along in this ride. She says it to Gil. I'm only going because he's going to go anyway. And so maybe I can keep him from hurting himself. <laughs> How does that work out? Uh, and two, <laughs> you know, none of them believe him. It's just like when someone's it's lip service. Yeah. It's right. Exactly. It's just them saying, yes, dear. Yes. 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 We'll go check out your lead, your crackpot. That's essentially what they're, they're just kind of patting him on his head. And so I'm happy that he turns around to her and says, when will it be enough? It'll never be enough. You don't care if he dies. And she's like, yeah, I don't really care if he dies. That's essentially what she's saying there. Because if he dies, maybe Malcolm will be free. You'll be free. This, this it, Yeah, like in of, her mind, it'll right. be easier for him. Right. And Gil's too. I mean, that's why he says, you know, yeah. it'll all be better if Martin is dead is essentially the theme of this episode. Except for Malcolm's trying to put up both hands and trying to say to them, no, no, that is not true. I will not be better off if my father dies not the surgeon dies if my father dies i will not be better off for it so really interesting dynamic and i thought this was a great scene that it came to a head here and and i loved how he kind of exploded he lost his cool on danny which he very rarely does with his uh you know it'll never be enough you know when will it be enough it'll never be enough because lord i was thinking the same thing we talked to Tom a, a lot about this in the interview, but I, I wanted to ask you because you're a big Brightwell shipper. How excited were you that Danny and Malcolm did finally kiss and, and that it wasn't a fantasy? It wasn't due to head trauma on Malcolm's part. It was a real thing that really happened. Uh, what, what were your reactions to that? At first, I was like, yes. And then when Gil called her and she was like, she threw up her hands and just the look on her face, her body language, I was like, 
is this buyer's remorse? Like I was not happy about it because I feel like it was just like the pressure cooker moment of this scene where she's like, I'm begging you. And then there was just this moment between them. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's the real deal. I agree. I think the look on her face when, when she eventually is back at the police station where Ainsley finds her, she's definitely sitting there wondering, being angry at Malcolm for what she thinks is him running off. Which, listen, to be fair, totally possible that Malcolm <laughs> runs away after kissing her. Feelings? Yeah. No. <laughs> right, 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 right. Because we know, we know how hesitant he has been about getting to this point. And kissing someone is a line that, you know, after you've spent so much time I'm building a friendship from scratch and now and and it and everyone seeing it moving beyond friendship into something romantic and and then then kissing that kissing becomes a line that you can't unkiss you can't uncross that line malcolm and or danny are both going to be thinking about that moment malcolm can't think about anything right now he's unconscious in the back of a speedboat but danny is clearly sitting there thinking about that moment thinking about what did i do have i made a horrible mistake for a myriad of reasons so i agree with you i don't know yes it's fantastic in a way because i think the show has done such a good job of building it organically but it's also something that it could not have happened at the worst possible time for it to be a great thing to build on later because that kiss will always be tainted with hey remember when i voluntarily drugged myself and submitted myself to vivian capsule afterwards and for her- got, got embolized and then got embolized it's always going to be right you remember when we stood in the locker room of the serial killer crazy lady and then i ran down the hallway in like a horror movie right after that that's always going to be tied to that memory of that kiss that's not a fantastic first kiss memory so I I think I agree with you I think I was happy to see it done I'm a big shipper of these two also I like them together I think the show has done a good job of putting them together but this kiss could not have happened maybe at the worst possible time so I, I mean really crazy really really crazy let's get into Martin and Vivian because this was the other obviously big aspect of the show there's Malcolm trying to find his father but then you actually have Martin and Vivian uh, having their psychotic adventure together well against Martin's will last week we laid out two scenarios about what could have happened and, and how Martin came to be in Vivian's trunk I picked the wrong one I had gone with the Martin was a genius and never intended to get on the ambulance that this was always his Bonnie and Clyde plan that that was clearly wrong vivian we see in this episode subdued martin is now holding him captive she's giving off a lot of horror movie vibes throughout this episode i'm I'm curious about whether her captor persona worked for you in this episode did you like Catherine zeta jones the way she played vivian capshaw here as the delusional captor and if it reminded you from any characters from any movies were you getting some uh, horror movie vibes from her so Vivian, oh my God. So last week you had the great Harley Quinn theory and I was more like, uh, I think that she's worse than he is in terms of like the psychotic scale. And that really played out here. For me, I was getting such a great mix of horror, suspense, movie villains. Her- like what's the opposite of a heroine? I guess villain. But I was getting like Annie Wilkes from Misery. I got 
Alex Forrest from Fatal Attraction, Glenn Close's character. I got even a sprinkle of Amy Dunn from Gone Girl because she's so delusional and she's so beyond reproach is really, you used that term last week and I, it's, it's stuck with me this whole episode because nobody's questioning her. So I was getting the Amy Dunn from Gone Girl feeling about her for this. She's so delusional. She's so dangerous and she's so in control of herself on so many different levels that when she last episode, when she was lying to Malcolm and he was like, oh, you're doing this on a third grade level. No, no, no. She was just giving off the vibe that she needed to let off in order to further this duplicitous nature of hers. A lot about this worked for me. We've been talking about it for all the episodes that she's been here. Like, there's something odd about her. Like, why is she in a prison? There was always something a little bit odd and off about her. And just the way that she was unraveling her true personality was just so, so great for me. I, I was definitely getting a lot of misery vibes for sure. Uh, you know, if she had like smashed his ankles with a hammer, I was totally ready for it. I mean, she kind of did the pharmaceutical equivalent well, of she that. She cracked something of his. Yeah, she so did. Some there, there is, yeah, she did. And there is a really graphic snapping sound that I could have probably done without from my stomach. But yeah, no, I, I think she played it so well. And I love watching the thinking back on what we had seen now. And this is the beauty of the show. You can go rewatch season two now and all of the episodes where Capshaw is a character in them and reevaluate her actions through that lens. You know, I love that Martin brings up kind of non sequiturally, he brings up the aspirin and the head drilling, uh, which was really his first interaction with her, where she came off kind of helpless, but managed to get through with Martin's help. And he applauded her skill. And she seemed to really like that pat on the back from him at the time. And then she, then she got cold and she had him removed from the infirmary, right? That was always, that's always her thing. She is buffeted by his, words of encouragement and his attaboys, but then she would like, you know, the mask would drop and she would have him like thrown out of the infirmary. And him wondering back made me wonder back to all of those moments where she just laid the trap out so well for everyone. She gave everyone exactly what she wanted everyone to see. And she admits it. She has this fantastic explanation, which I want to talk about because she says a bunch of things in this episode where she's clearly a sociopath. She's clearly psychotic, but she's also maybe not wrong in a lot of the things that she says like this. <laughs> We can't stay here, though, Vivian. There are people looking for me. But no one's looking for me. All police see when they look at me is a victim. But Martin Whitley, ooh, the big bad wolf, the boogeyman, the surgeon. People take comfort in finding women to their expected roles. So, yes, we can stay here. Is she wrong? People do find comfort and they easily accept women, unfortunately, playing these expected roles. No one blinks twice when a Vivian Capshaw is the victim the way she was here, you know, or when she's the pretty face for, for the purposes of the trooper. And she, the way she's like pumping up his ego with, thank God we have big, strong men to take care of us, you know, from the unsavory types. Uh, how much irony is dripping in that sentence? She, <laughs> she plays these roles that are expected 
expected of her in such a way that she turns them to her advantage and she does it kind of masterfully. So it's almost like shame on us, shame on us as a society for not suspecting the Vivian Capshaws until Jessica becomes complicit in Vivian's plan. She's sitting on the couch saying, oh, that poor woman, she's such a victim now. That, which is exactly what Vivian wanted you to think, right? No one's looking for me, baby, because I'm just a poor woman taken in by you. Is she wrong? This is a really masterful class we're seeing in psychopathy, in the track of a sociopath, the track of, of a narcissist. I'm getting vibes from her that she might be a student of Martin, of, of the surgeon, and she might be better than him. I think there's certainly an argument to be made that we have, or at least a conversation that we have to have. Is she actually better than Martin? Because we know Martin killed 23 people, but we don't really know the circumstances of how he lured them all into his web to then kill them. This level of lying, this level of deceit that Vivian has been doing since she showed up on the scene, all building to this moment, really has to make you think she's operating on a level even above Martin because she is using and manipulating the system in addition to being so in control and in addition to being so skilled. Martin was a, a skillful surgeon who couldn't control his impulses to kill or couldn't suppress his ego to kill and to control life and death, which presumably led him down the path of becoming a serial killer. None of that is requires him being extra, right? None of that requires him playing against roles society expects of him or manipulating what society expects of him. It was actually just a guy that was in the right career to do the thing that he truly loved to do, which was kill. You know, it's I'm a surgeon in the operating room, but I'm also a surgeon that kills people behind closed doors, right? The church, church and state, state, the church and state <laughs> argument. Exactly. You know, Martin was just being Martin at all times. It was just some was for pleasure and some was for his job. Vivian is having to be different people, right? She's having, she has to be a doctor at Claremont. But she also has to be taken in by Martin and portray herself as this victim taken in and and brainwashed by him or maybe or maybe against her will by him. But then she is also this skilled surgeon who can stop his heart and revive him and bring him back. She is, is someone who can introduce an embolism. And if not for the doorbell ringing, presumably could have, you know, extracted resolved the embolism, it, yeah. right? Resolved the embolism and save, you know, saved his life. So Vivian is having to operate on several levels all at once, keeping it all together and keeping it all ordered in her mind. I think all of that lends itself to the fact that she may actually be a better sociopath and a better psychotic killer than Martin. So there's a lot we also don't know about her. So she says to Martin at one point, like, I can't go back to jail. I've been there. I'm not as strong as you. What does that mean? I, you I know, don't think she means that she was just working at the prison, Claremont. Who knows? So we learn through Malcolm's theory, which Gil dismisses, this idea that she had a record, but that it was covered up and erased by her former hospital or hospitals that she worked for. But otherwise, she is clean. She did not do jail time, at least not under her name, right? Because you wouldn't, she wouldn't have been able to erase a jail record, a prison record. Malcolm's theory does hold true that maybe she could have convinced the board to have erased her professional record or cleaned up 
a per professional record. So there's a limit to how much she's actually maybe done. Uh, as far as we know, there are no surgeon like copycat killers out there where maybe she's the one who did the murders that haven't been accounted for. So my guess is actually Martin may be her first victim outside her angel of mercy victims that she worked on in the hospital. I think it's maybe something like the student becoming the master by taking on the master kind of thing. This is her coming out party as a serial killer is her taking down the one that encouraged her and was her mentor from afar to begin with like what kind of like what trophy that would be to have that the surgeon as your kill as your mark right 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 as right being your inspiration and being your first victim and then to outsmart him the way that she did Right. And, well, and if you know, it wasn't for his meddling kid, you know, <laughs> well, I think I think we have to get into this entire this entire pathology that's going on and psychology that's going on in this episode. Let's not be hasty. We want the same things. I thought we did. I thought you wanted to be with me. I do. I don't believe you. You called her. Why? What is it with Jessica? I met her. Remember your ex? She's beautiful, but she's not your equal, Martin. This is not Jesse. Jesse? You call her Jesse. That's not a name. That's a shade of a lip gloss. I've always known that men need to feel superior to their sexual partners because they think it keeps the spark alive. I thought you were different. I'll remind you my uh, marriage didn't exactly work out. You were hiding your true self. It's a shame so many people had to die. But what you did with those bodies... Jesse can never understand your accomplishments. You can? Yeah. Because I... Because I have a brilliant medical mind just like you. This obsession with being his equal and demonstrating it to him that she is his equal, if not his better, is such an important part of everything that's fueling all of this. It's why she is taking Martin for her hostage here, because she wants him to have the front row seat to demonstrate in her mind that she's the one that belongs with him because she is the one who challenges him as an equal. She's presuming that his type, his preferred type is someone that is his equal, which is a question. Is that right? Is Martin looking for his equal in, in a, in a life partner? I don't know. Or, you know, or is he just looking for someone who's feisty? I think that may be more it for Martin. But in her head, Vivian has concocted this entire dating profile for Martin that revolves around must like blood, must be intelligent, professional, medical brained equal as me, must know how to use needles well. You know, I, I enabler I, I, of my angel of mercy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's fueling all of this. I love how after so many episodes with her, the show really was just 
doling out all of this exposition that really pulled back the curtain on who Vivian Capshaw is and what is motivating her, at least in her mind, at least as she sees it and as she seems to believe it, what is motivating her. Really, really fascinating that I think we could spend a long time just trying to break down those motivations. But I was curious how you took her actions with Martin and then with Malcolm versus this equals uh, concept that she puts forth here. Martin is not going to change his M.O. If he is to continue his murderous tendencies, he's killed 23 people. He has the way that he's going to do this if he ever were to do this again, although he assures Malcolm that it's not about murder. So he's not going to change that just because he's met someone who has as much fervor for murder that he has. So it was interesting that she was concocting this vision of how they would be so perfect together because he needed someone who was his equal. I think you're right. I think if Martin's partner just needs to be feisty. We were likening her earlier on with the, the, the tension and the chemistry between them, that she was up to task with him, that she's not intimidated by him, that she'll go toe to toe with him. And he did find that attractive, but not in the level that she's taking it to like she's she's gone full on Alex Forrest on him Annie Wilkes over here even Amy Dunn Amy Dunn doesn't get enough because it just hasn't been as much time as say like a veil attraction or a, a misery but Amy Dunn was pretty messed up in a lot of ways and I was seeing so many parallels to what she was doing here with that character so I think Martin is more along the lines of like he doesn't necessarily want an equal in all ways like he he wants a like a Jessica. Jessica's feisty. Jessica's going to stimulate him on a lot of different levels, the way that Vivian did early on. So it was just interesting to see that this is how Vivian saw Martin's psyche that he needed someone who was as brilliant, if not more brilliant than him, to to continue to challenge him. I think Martin more along the lines wants somebody that like an Ainsley. Not as a sexual partner, but as someone that he can like impart his knowledge to. He church and state. He wants to keep the love life, the stimulation there, separate from the murder with him. Because with all the stuff that we heard, like I didn't about Martin's killings and and his his profile, I didn't hear anything about sexual deviancy. So to me, like that that notion of church and state to me it really holds that Ainsley would be the person that he would want to engage in this activity with as opposed to Vivian like Vivian would be separate and apart from these activities I I agree with all of that I I would piggyback on it or or differentiate it a little bit by saying I think Vivian is onto something in trying to have shared hobbies with Martin (laughs) because and and we've talked about this Martin is someone because he is a malignant narcissist and that's uh, Malcolm's words in this episode that I loved because of that and we've talked about his parenting style Martin is only paying attention to his children when his children are being murdery stabby motherfuckers like he is that's when the only time he was ever really paying attention to Ainsley it's the thing that connects him and Malcolm and makes him most interested in Malcolm is when they're doing murder things like he did like the surgeon and so she's on to something by trying to have a shared interest of murder and death with him but man she's coming on real strong and using him as the test subject if, if you know if it's if it's just sexual attraction and trying to be a good partner for him She's kind of missing the boat on the thing. I, I think she could have had a much better and a much more significant relationship with Martin if it had been a mentor role. But like we said, 
she doesn't want to be a student though right i mean that goes all the way mm-hmm. back to when she talks about how she saw martin when she was in medical school and how she can never play the role that the boys wanted when she became a resident that she was reckless she was impulsive she can never get their acceptance because of who she was she doesn't want to be martin's student she wants to be martin's partner or she wants to be martin's better she doesn't want to be subservient to him she wants to be an equal to him and so the thing that gets Martin off. Let me be you. Let me be your teacher, Malcolm. Let me show you how to walk you through how to, you know, chop up a body with a bone saw. Ainsley, let me tutor you on how I became a serial killer by reading my books and by talking to me on the phone while you're in my office. All those student mentor things, all of those father child things that really excite Martin is not something Vivian can actually provide she says when malcolm says you know i'm here because yeah he's a murderer but he's also happens to be my father and it's dripping with love and loyalty to martin and she turns to martin and says that's what i want from you i want everything from you i want the love this love that you have for malcolm and malcolm has for you that's what i want from you Martin can never give that to Vivian because he barely can give it to his children. Exactly. And, and and it's a struggle. And it's only, I think he truly does love Malcolm only because I think he sees Malcolm really as an extension of himself or doesn't really truly love the parts of Malcolm that are different than Martin. It's just that there's so much of Malcolm and so much of Ainsley that are like Martin that I think he can truly love them as much as someone who is a sociopath can love someone. He can never have that with Vivian. He can never feel those things for Vivian, mainly because she will never be subservient to him, which good for her. You go, girlfriend. But you're not going to get the thing you want from Martin by being this way. It's not it's just apples and oranges, I think. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive concepts here. I think the other big thing about that we learn about Vivian in this episode is perfectly encapsulated by the fact that she does not kill the state trooper. Even though she has plenty of means and motive to do so, there's no one else on that road. No one else is going to be coming by there for a while. Were you surprised that she didn't kill the state trooper? And what does that show us about her that she didn't kill him? Just for the shits and giggles of it, I really would have liked her to have killed him. Just because he was just beyond gross and it's just nasty when men do that but i will get sure. on the as far as people well no as far as people who deserve to be killed you know he definitely was on the shittier side of things i don't yeah. know that he deserved to be killed for it but it would have been defensible had she killed him because, yeah like roll over gross. the car on his feet or something like that because he's in a position of power and he's leaning in and he's you know you're intimidated in that situation. There, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of feelings. There's a lot of adrenaline because you're trying to see, do I fight? Do I flight? Like what's going on? Because uh, I don't know. I, I, I was reading the signs. And I've been in situations like that and I was not comfortable. Then when she opens up the glove compartment, I was like, oh, she should just kill him just for the shits and giggles of it because he deserves it. And men like that, I'm sorry, they deserve it. <laughs> Maybe, maybe not a syringe in the neck or something like that, but they deserve to be put in their place. But she doesn't, though. And why? Why does? Well, she? I'm going to tell you I, what I think is the reason that she didn't is because he would be now become a liability on time. She's under the cover of darkness. Martin's got a spinal block, which is why when the trooper bangs on the trunk, that Martin doesn't react because he's he's knocked out, and if he's got a spinal block, he can't move. 
So she's only got a limited amount of time. And I'm sorry, but killing a state trooper is a bloodier mess than killing a civilian because somebody's going to go looking for him. They can trace his car. They can trace his cell. There's a lot that can go on that can lead the breadcrumbs to her sooner than she would like any kind of heat on her. So I think it's just good timing on the state trooper's part that he did not get a syringe in the neck. I agree. I, I, I'm going to go one step further. I think it demonstrates the fact that she is in so much control yeah. that that she does that she is not given over to her impulses because he did deserve it in a way. He was super gross. He also, when he bangs on the trunk and she kind of jumps and stares and glares at him, she's thinking about it. She's doing the math. Clearly, she doesn't have a problem murdering. So she's doing the calculation. It's better for me to use these charms and smile and appease his ego like she does, Mm -hmm. playing the expected role that she does versus the murder, you know, option. You know, I, I came upon you know, a fork of the road. And, you know, I chose the path. <laughs> I chose the path of expected roles. And that's what she does here because yeah. it's the smart move for her to do. Yeah, she's it's, demure. She defers right. to him. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But it's important that people stop and think about that, though, because she's not crazy in the sense that she doesn't know what's going on. She may be crazy or she may be psychotic in the grand scheme of things and how she views the world and her place in it. But she is in full control. She is in full control this episode all the way through the end of this episode where she stabs herself in the shoulder, where she calls the police to let them know that the surgeon has stabbed her, then stabs herself, then screams because she knows it's going to bring Danny and Ainsley inside, putting Martin on the defensive. She's in control this entire episode and is never not in control. And knowing that Danny's going to come in with her weapon drawn to take down Martin. Exactly. And Martin makes the point, it's me and him against you. Who are they going to believe? And she's like, yeah, they're going to believe me. I have the stab wound and you're the surgeon and your son he is... believed me. Right. You're, you're, he believed me. And Malcolm was in no condition, really. I mean, we see him in the in the speedboat just a few minutes later, passed out. He was in no right state to defend his father at that point. And by then, maybe there's a bullet in Martin already. You know, I think there's an argument to be made, though, that Martin holding or hugging Malcolm in fear when Danny comes in a room, unless Danny shoots right away, there's room there to argue that there's a discussion to be had. But... Vivian makes a very compelling argument, and Martin clearly chooses to believe her and err on the side of caution, which Malcolm also advises him to do. But the point, the larger point I'm trying to make here is Vivian is so dangerous because she is in such control. She can control her impulses. She only needs to kill. She only needs to be violent when in her brain, she needs to be violent, right? She's playing a game with Martin. Pick a syringe. Don't tell me. Let me guess. You know, she's playing a game with him, but then she gets violent because he ruins the game and she gets annoyed that he ruins the game. But it requires something happening for her to lose her control and to drop her mask of control and controlling her impulses. And then she stabs. It's like enough time. You know, now I'm going to have to do it. You're ruining right, my like fun. When something when something doesn't go according to her plan, that's when she starts to lose the plot. Right, right, right. But and but then always snaps to again and and recomposes her face. You know, she puts back on that mask again of yeah. Control. She's got to let she's got to let off the steam. Right. And regroup. That is the most dangerous kind of person. Now, someone who is reckless may be dangerous because you can't predict their actions. They may just start firing wildly or whatnot. But they're not terribly smart. 
Someone like Vivian, you may be able to predict her actions, but maybe not. And the bigger problem is she's wicked smart and very talented. So she's got the skills to back up her intelligence. That's a really hard and person. Her, and her psychopathy. Right. And that's a really hard person to bring down because they're thinking they're playing 3D chess while you're playing checkers kind of thing. You need a Malcolm. You need a Martin to stand up to that brain because other people aren't thinking that way. Other people aren't operating on so many levels all at once. You know, right. the Vivian capsules of the world, they're operating on so many different levels, three of which are at any given time are murderous. You need a special kind of person to challenge that person. You know, Gil and Danny and JT, when next week's episode picks up, presumably they're going to be like, oh, it's OK, it's OK. And she's going to be cat with a canary in her mouth. How long is it before they realize she's the true bad person here? She's, I mean, Martin is a bad person. Martin does deserve to be recaptured and recommitted to Claremont. But this woman is a bad person who needs to be taken off the board like ASAP. How long are they going to be coddling her as a victim while watching her play her expected role before they get that Malcolm was right all along? That's the big question for me going into the season finale, uh, going into the season finale next week. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how she spins this because we have the the voice memo recording from Ainsley that she plays for Danny from the phone call with Malcolm where Vivian essentially kidnapped yes, him. Or- but also the voice recording that for whatever reason, Danny doesn't call the marshals in on, doesn't tell Gil about. So even Danny is acting rogue here. Now, we don't know what happened, right? We leave Danny in the in the torture room. Ainsley has is supposed to be watching Vivian. Who knows when Danny emerges, what that's going to look like. Is Ainsley having taken out uh, uh, Vivian? Will Vivian have taken out Ainsley and run? Is is Are they just going to be chatting with each other? I think Ainsley's in danger. I think we're going to open up with something that Vivian's going to try to escape and Ainsley's going to get hurt somehow in the process. I don't think mortally hurt, but I think something's going to happen to Ainsley just because nobody's really looking at her. And even though Ainsley might have her hackles up, I I just, I don't know. There's, there's some dynamic there between these two that I think is going to play out like psychopath versus psychopath 2.0 i'm I'm inclined that there's going to be something happening between ainsley and vivian because ainsley is the only one who truly believes malcolm at this point about vivian being the danger and again ainsley is not like malcolm and even maybe more so than malcolm does not want martin hurt while Malcolm, I think, definitely does want Martin put back in Claremont, Ainsley doesn't. Ainsley, I think, is was fully on board with trying to help him escape and wants him free so they can be whatever together and do whatever together. Right. Uh, their student mentor relationship, uh, you know, continue those lessons in a less Claremonty environment. So Ainsley is going to have every motivation to try and get Vivian to talk. Now, while Danny's investigating, it's going to be very interesting when the episode picks up uh, next week what that looks like because I, I don't think we're done at the beach house at uh, Logan Zeiger's beach house I think there's still more action to be had there I have one question and I know that we're running long on Martin and Vivian but it's just so much going on I can't let go because this is the thing that I was hypothesizing about the end of last episode so we see the flashback to Vivian where she subdues Martin in the parking lot after the escape but there's not a lot of other details from that chaotic moment. What is your theory on how she was able to get out there so fast? 
Because there's so many unanswered questions for me there. So the best I have, and it kind of hit me like a lightning bolt watching this episode, we totally forgot about the Easter egg, the little nugget that they planted at the beginning of last week's episode. Because of the jailbreak, because of that great scene of Martin escaping and Vivian yelling and crying through the glass door about, don't do this, Martin. And he said, you know, the whole, like, it's hard to leave. All of that. Because we got so caught up in the jailbreak part of that episode, we completely forget, or at least I had completely forgotten, Vivian knew that the jailbreak was coming. Remember, she's checking out Willie in the infirmary while Hector and Friar Pete are on the other side of the door, and they're having that conversation where Willie basically lets loose that Martin is the head of the snake and that the three of them are planning on something and Willie isn't invited anymore. We've totally forgot Vivian had this. She knew all this. She knew all of this. She was was ready for all of this. We totally fucking forgot Vivian was ready for all this. She had been told we got duped by her victimology as well. We did. And and just good pacing of the episode because it happened so early in that episode, you totally forget when it happened. Jesus, when, that was like two hours ago nearly. <laughs> when 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 he when he finally makes his escape, you totally forget the fact that she totally knew she was ready for it. She probably had another goddamn gold cards that she could get out. It was all show. She knew the escape was happening. She was ready for it. She probably had everything staged because even if she didn't know the exact time, she knew it was coming so she could be ready for it. Ah, oh, Willie ruined everything. I'm glad he got a shoe in the ear. <laughs> Tom Ford in the ear. I'm still so proud of that. <laughs> what was Willie's, what's Willie's imaginary friend's name? Daryl, Willie's oh! imaginary friend. Okay, I keep saying Willie. Yeah, That's so okay. Daryl and Willie the imaginary, well, maybe it was Willie speaking were, through Daryl. It, it's, it's, a, it's a tag team. They yes. play off each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm happy Daryl got a shoe in the ear because he's the one who who tipped Vivian off. She knew all about it, people. So when we come back down to a root cause, it's actually Daryl's fault that all this happened. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And so he deserved what he got from Jessica. Speaking of Jessica, we've got to get on to Jessica because we've got to get to our interview with Tom Payne. Let's talk really quickly about Jessica and Gil here. Um, the, the big storyline for Jessica tonight is that she becomes complicit in Vivian's capture of Martin and maybe murder of Martin when she chooses not to say anything. Martin calls the house. Jessica picks up. She speaks to him. Martin warns Jessica. Vivian picks up the phone, says, just keep this between us, just us girlfriends. I'm going to take care of the problem that you told me you want to take care of. So don't worry about it. And so Jessica now has to have a choice. Do I say something and save Martin or try to save Martin? Or do I keep quiet? And she keeps quiet. Did that surprise you that she made that choice? there's no easy answer with any of these questions because you started touching on it early in the episode when we were talking about just like the opening moments of of the show and some of the big themes that, that hit out at us. And this was one of the things that I was just like, I, I didn't know how I felt about it because, you know, taking a step back, she's been dealing with this on such a different level than Malcolm and Ainsley all these years at a different level than Gil, obviously that her ultimate fantasy is Martin gone, but not at the expense of her children. But she makes a choice here thinking that they'll be better off as well without him. So she's making a decision for them as much as she's making a decision for herself, but they're at diametrically opposed ends of the spectrum. Whereas she's going to benefit so much from having this cancer cut out of her life, excised out of her life. Whereas her children are going to be irrevocably harmed by the loss of their father 
notwithstanding that both of these men are the same person and a serial killer. So I was a little surprised that nobody said anything and nobody knew anything about it because last week we saw with JT in the house that like, don't worry, the phone is being monitored. So how does this slip by? I don't understand. It's a great point to raise what happened because we see that the crowd outside of Stately Whitley Manor is as large as ever. So where is the police presence inside? Where is JT or JT's relief monitoring the phone calls and tapping? Maybe. And but you know what? They weren't recording it in that room, right? Because there was no cops in that room when JT was with her last week. So maybe the conversation was recorded and they just haven't listened to it yet. Maybe it's going to come out that Jessica did get this information and didn't say anything about it. Here's the problem, though. You have this conversation she has with Gil, because I think she's going to tell Gil. And then Gil basically reinforces all of her darker desires by saying, mm-hmm. listen, I think about him being dead all the time. I think in so many, so many ways, you'd all be better off if he was dead, that maybe we could be together. Maybe things could be different. Uh, it's th- this line, this uh, conversation right here. There's no good outcome here, Jess. Did they find him? Bring him back alive, he's back in your lives. If they take him out. My children lose their father. It's okay to hope for that, you know. Martin put you through hell. That ghost, it's not a friendly one. Gil has no idea what he's done by saying that. Because I don't think he intended this to be a real thing. He's talking hypothetically this entire time. I've had these same thoughts. Thoughts aren't bad. Wishing Martin dead isn't bad. They're just thoughts. The thoughts don't make you bad. It's the actions that matter. The actions that matter. Which is something we all teach our kids. I, it's the thing I teach my son all the time. It's words, words or wind, to use Game of Thrones parlance. It's the idea that your actions matter. Jessica is making an action by not doing something here. She listens to Gil's words as he wraps her up in a big hug, and she makes the choice. This is an action. She's making a choice to not say anything. That is huge. I can't believe Gil would endorse her not saying something about talking to Vivian and knowing Vivian is the one who has Martin and not Martin having Vivian. I know Gil would not endorse that. Even if he wanted Martin dead, he would not endorse that if we, if he knew that they were actually talking about real things, not just hypotheticals, which is what he thinks this conversation is about. Yeah, I agree with you completely that Gil would not endorse this notion that Martin should be suffering at the hands of, of Vivian as, as his captor. But what he unwittingly does is give Jessica the out to omit what she knows. So therefore, there's this gray area now that Jessica is living in because by taking no action is taking an action, right? So she's she's making a stance by keeping quiet. 
And Gil almost gave her permission to do it by saying what he said. Yeah, yeah, because right, because you know, he thinks they're talking about apples. She's thinking about oranges in her yeah. head and uses his words to justify what she chooses to do or or not to do, uh which you're right. It, it doing nothing is a choice. You're still you're doing something by doing nothing. Right. Right, because she's got all the information that nobody else has, so nobody else can make any kind of informed decision based on what she's not sharing. Now, here's the thing that makes this even more complicated because it's going to come out pretty quickly. It has to that Malcolm and Martin must be together because neither of them are in the torture room. So Jessica is going to have this choice to make next week. Do I say now about what I know because I know Martin was being held by Vivian, but now Martin and Malcolm have disappeared together. So while Martin was a victim with Vivian, he has my boy now. So does that change it where now I want to identify what I know or or not? And now I've been lying. Now I've actually been lying by omission this time for this length of time that maybe this could have all been avoided. Jessica has put herself in a really difficult position where Malcolm's safety is now at risk. You know, Malcolm, if Jessica had come clean to Ainsley, who had just left Malcolm, they had been together, maybe Malcolm doesn't have to submit himself to Vivian. Maybe he doesn't have to get drugged and be put in a position of having an embolism and weakening himself if Jessica had just come clean. But Jessica never understood, never understood Malcolm's need for Martin in his life. Just like Danny, just like Gil, Jessica is the same. I'm telling you what's better for you, Malcolm. I'm telling you that you're better off with Martin not in your life. You're better off maybe with Martin dead. No one ever stopped to listen to Malcolm say that's not true. Or or maybe Malcolm doesn't even realize it's not true. But he definitely needs Martin in his life for good or for bad. It, it's because there's so much left undone between the two of them. Jessica's never given that credence. She has just always assumed what was best for Malcolm. And now Malcolm's life is in jeopardy. Malcolm has been put through the ringer, not because of Jessica, but Jessica could have stopped that. If Jessica had opened up her mouth sooner, she could have prevented what happened to Malcolm. There's no way that this is not going to play out in the finale, that it comes out that Jessica got this phone call and chose to do nothing. Yes, I agree. I agree, which is going to piss off a lot of people. And it's going to piss off Gil, too, again, because it's going to be Gil. Gil is, you know, maybe, maybe not. Gil has a real soft spot for Jessica, the same way he has a soft spot for Malcolm. Maybe Gil doesn't take her to task for withholding actual information that it wasn't just bad thoughts, that it was actually bad actions that she did here. But maybe he does. I don't I, I can't predict and I don't even want to take a chance to predict how the finale plays out. But I know for sure this is going to end up weighing on Jessica and this choice that she's made here. I think the last thing uh, we need to talk about with them is uh, the scene where Malcolm and Jessica team up to go after Dr. Stangle. What did you think of these two uh, dynamic duo working Dr. Stangle over in the lunchroom in the restaurant? I thought this was a really good masterstroke and manipulation. They kept saying Vivian's name, Dr. Capshaw, Vivian Capshaw. I, I don't know. They, they said it like three times or something like that. This was when they were thinking that she was a victim. So saying a victim's name, saying a person's name, it humanizes them in such a way that 
you would feel major guilt if you ignored that. Whereas if you just say her or his victim or things like, but saying Sheila McGann, saying Michael Caputo is like, it, it brings you back to this person has a family. This person has kids who will miss him or, you know, a parent who's going to miss him, or brother, sister, whatever it ends up being. So I thought it was really masterful. And then the final stroke, the nail in the coffin for Dr. Stengel and his cooperation, um, deniability is when Jessica lays on the guilt that Dr. Stengel is actually the reason that uh, Martin and um, Jessica were introduced. So uh, I thought this was a really interesting way to use a family dynamic that they've been trying to suppress for nearly 30 years to their advantage. The Whitleys are always best when the Whitleys are working together. Whether yes, when, when, when they're working together in a dynamic duo sense, whether it's Malcolm and Ainsley going to Zygers, or whenever mm-hmm. Malcolm team, teams up with Jessica, when it's Malcolm and Martin, the Whitleys working together always give you the best, most fun and or memorable moments on the show because their dynamic is so believable. They balance real family drama with amazing chemistry so so well it always makes me smile very wide when we get to see scenes like this where it's like an old vaudeville act of manipulation watching jessica and malcolm work this guy over and make him sweat out his lunch make him he is aware of every single eyeball on them because jessica whitley and malcolm bright walk into a restaurant people know who they are and they know who they're related to or at least they know who jessica is related to People tend not to know who Malcolm is, but they know Jessica Whitley, the ex-wife of the escaped fugitive, the surgeon, is in this restaurant now. And he is so he is so sweating all of that. I, I, I like the scene also because Michael Kostroff, who plays Dr. Stengel here, is a goddamn pro. He is such a good actor. You have seen him in about a million different things. I was so excited when I saw his name in the opening credits. I was like, oh, yay! Because uh, he's been in everything. He's been in everything, and he is so good. He he will step into this one-episode role, and he will knock it out of the park, and you will remember him, and you will think that he was in multiple episodes, and it'll just be this one little scene, because that's just who Michael Kostroff is. I love when he shows up in shows. I'm a big, big fan of his, so it was a real treat to get him for this role, and he gives up the goods, and that's that kind of, you know, gets it's Malcolm and Ainsley on the case of uh, Vivian Capshaw. So, yeah, really, really happy to and see. flips the profile, ultimately. Yeah, it ultimately flips the profile. Uh, yeah, great to see him in the episode. Great to see Malcolm and Jessica working together. I really, really appreciated that. I think the last thing we have to do before we get to our interview is talk about Ainsley really quickly. Ainsley is totally Team Malcolm. Uh, all the animosity and suspicion from last week when she was being hauled in to the interrogation room, all forgotten this week. No one's batting an eye. No one's looking at Ainsley weird. But were you surprised that she didn't have more of a prominent role in the storyline tonight? When I stopped and thought about it afterwards, I was like, there really wasn't room for anything else in this episode. So something had to give. So like Adresa wasn't here and Ainsley had to take on a diminished role because there was just so much oxygen in the room between Martin and Vivian and then what Malcolm brought to it. So there really wasn't room for much else. But I was pleasantly surprised to see that she suppress some of these psychotic tendencies to become team Malcolm and to, to let all bygones be aside for now because he's in danger and she needs to help him out with Danny and getting her on board. So I was glad to see that she's able to keep her humanity and regain some of the things that she'd lost this, this season, I thought. For now. 
anyway for, for now. now yeah for like, now. yeah i mean like you know you heard the way i was saying it like very haltingly because i'm like it's it's not gonna last it's, once the family dynamic is restored then it'll go back to status quo it's kind of like that old like schoolyard thing it's like i can pick on my brother but if you picked on my brother then you and i got a problem and plus i think ainsley i think ainsley has her own set of plans with martin i think there was a whole bunch of things that we still don't know about from their conversations inside claremont and on the phone that we don't know the details of yet we don't know how the now that we know that he didn't willingly go with vivian we don't know what his actual escape plans were and how ainsley fit into them but the fact that she was expecting a call from Mm -hmm. that pre-programmed cell phone number that fire pete had tells me that she had some role to play so she's got a vested interest in being team malcolm because she believes rightly that he's the best one to get to martin and get him back or bring him to the surface that she can then safely piggy- that, yeah. and, and that she can then piggyback off of that and then continue on with whatever her martin ainsley plans were right because she's not done with him yeah so i i think i think it's a little bit of she is on her brother's side versus the nypd and and the u.s marshals when it comes to martin but i think it's mainly because she's got her own selfish reasons it's all it's all toward an end that she yeah, has to serve her own interests yeah right 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 I- i'm on board with that all right guys that takes us to the end of this episode there was a lot that we talked about and we have even more coming up now with our interview with tom Payne. Uh, again we-, we go from when he first came on to prodigal son and we walk through his audition process through the ups and downs that malcolm has had over the seasons to the complicated relationships that he's had this season and all the things that he's been through and all the way through teasing next week's finale so this is a really must listen to interview and i hope you enjoy it and here's our interview with tom Payne coming up right now Joining us tonight on The Surgeon's Files, we are so excited to finally have him on. We have Tom Payne, Malcolm Bright himself. Tom, thanks so much for coming on tonight. How are you doing? My pleasure. Nice to finally make it on. Even though we're at the end of season two, uh, I'd really like to take a moment just to go back to the, in the Wayback Machine and talk about you coming on board, Prodigal Son. Now, you joined mm-hmm. the show a little bit later than everyone else, but tell us a little bit how you came to the role and, and be the lead in the show. Had you read for it earlier? What was the transition out of The Walking Dead and that gorgeous Jesus hair into clean-cut <laughs> Malcolm? You know, take us, take us back a couple of years. Well, yeah, I had come out of Walking Dead, and um, that had been a pretty intense three-year journey for me. Um, Three years of growing up my hair and my beard and traveling around the world, going to all these different places and meeting fans around the world. It was a whole whirlwind experience. And um, so after that, I was... I was pretty into just hanging out for a bit and taking a bit of time and waiting for the right thing to come along. And then this came along and it, and it was just really the best part that I had ever been involved in or, or had read. And, and they wanted to just meet me and have a chat. It was um, Sarah Schechter, um, uh, who was one of the producers from um, Belanti, and um, Chris Fedak, one of the uh, creators and showrunners took me out for a drink basically and um wanted to chat about it and see what i thought and and uh, and i loved it and so that was a nice meeting and then i went i think i don't know if i did a tape i think i just went in to do what we would refer to as like a screen test so go and do a test in front of a room of i guess i think it was about 10 people seven people uh, like all different executives and stuff it's a pretty normal thing in hollywood for for a network show and that seemed to go really well and it was great and it was like kind of a high five type meeting and then somebody else higher up 
didn't see it basically with me at that time i still had my long hair and beard um because i felt like it was a strong look and it could be adapted in different ways for different jobs and so uh certainly uh definitely the hair i was still hanging on to someone in the process was like i don't i don't see it um with the way that he looks and and they ended up going in another direction which i was quite surprised by because everything had gone so well and i was like oh this is amazing this is this seems like it's made to work out right and then after they had the read through and then they realized that actually maybe that wasn't the right choice. And so then the director called me and said, listen, we really want you to do it. And we think you're right for it, but you're going to have to change your look and at least shave your beard. I was like, yeah, okay, absolutely. So I shaved my beard, but I wouldn't cut my hair because my hair was like three years of growth. And I thought that, you know, there aren't that many male actors with long hair and, and, I had worn a wig before and certainly when I started on Walking Dead I was wearing extensions and it's just annoying and fake and if you can get away with not doing it it's best. So I did some more tapes where I shaved and I tied my hair up and it was very quick and I sent those tapes in at the weekend and then we convinced the person that needed to be convinced that uh that shaving uh had changed everything and then they could totally see that it was me now. <laughs> and um and then I was and then I was on set on Wednesday um shooting and it was a that was going from the whirlwind experience that I was talking about with The Walking Dead. This was a whole other whirlwind experience because the part is so intense and emotionally crazy there's a lot of stuff going on that I, I had to lean on the director definitely to to help me ease into it because it was a lot it's a lot of dialogue and a lot of um long shooting days and and you're in every single day but uh but I was honestly so excited with all of the people they brought on and knowing that Michael was going to be playing my father and that we were going to have these amazing scenes together I was just so excited to to really get into some acting again. Like I, right. I love The Walking Dead, but it didn't really stretch me in any way as an actor. I didn't ever feel that I was learning anything or being pushed in any way as far as my acting goes. I learned lots of other things from that show, but I, it didn't really stretch me in that way. And so I really wanted something that would really push me. And it was like the universe said, here, have everything at once, like have all the most stressful situations and emotional scenes and do it with one of the best actors in the world. And, and I, I mean, it was great. And, it, and it's everything that I needed. It's made me better as an actor, better as, you know, professionally and performance wise. I've loved all my time on the show and I, I owe it a lot. And um, yeah, those scenes with Michael are just like, they're like doing a play, right. which as an actor, like you really, you miss it, you know, and um, it's just two people in a room throwing emotions at each other, which is great. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, every every time you guys are in a scene together, not just with you and Michael, but you and Lou and you with Bellamy, yeah, Bellamy I mean, and it's, yeah, it's always a masterclass, you know, a bit in, in an acting scene. You know, if you're if you're giving tips on, well, how do you do dialogue? How do you uh, like a mode? How do you convey relationships? Oh, go watch yeah. this episode of, you know, Prodigal Son, and <laughs> I think you're going to get what you want. Uh, what was the adjustment like uh, just over the course of the first season going from an ensemble show and then being the lead? I, I've read interviews before with, with you where you've talked about the pressures of being number one on the call sheet and the long days and that kind of extra responsibilities did did that did you get used to it quickly or was that more of a more of a long process for you to get used to i think there are things that um you don't necessarily realize until you're in them like i am i really like being i've been the lead in a couple of movies and stuff and i and i understand your role within that and it's really nice to be the person who sets the tone and can make put everyone at ease that you're nice and it's going to be a nice experience and you're here for the job and you're here for the work and i love having that leadership role but 
just yeah based on um the long days and the amount of dialogue and just working every day and getting up at 5 30 in the morning and getting home at eight o'clock at night and you know just physically it's something that you haven't done before until you um lead a network show and do 20 episodes it's it's just an entirely different thing but you know you you get through it. i definitely had some breakdowns and some emotional moments just through exhaustion at times it teaches you that you have to look after yourself you can't necessarily at the end of a long day have a drink because that drink will catch up with you the next day and that's not even like getting drunk or anything it's just like right. you just have to be clean living because otherwise you will you'll fall apart really right. 5am call time comes quickly yeah, uh, even quickly. without drinking <laughs> yeah absolutely and you don't you also don't have time for anything else. So people would ask me like, Oh, how's living in New York? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't really live in New York. Like I work (laughs) every single day of the week. And then on the weekends, I just collapse and recharge for the next week. Whereas like Bellamy is like loving and going to all the West end shows and like having like eating out at dinners and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't see New York really. Um, So that's a whole other side of it, which I didn't on the walking dead. Like I loved Atlanta. Um, I really loved it. And I wasn't in as much on The Walking Dead, so I got to enjoy being there and, and enjoy my time there. But but New York is just, I don't know, it's a bit of a... I mean, it's not a stranger. I do know it better now, having been there for two years. But, um, but I've certainly not been taking advantage of all the things that it can provide you. Yeah, you could have used some plot lines where you had to go to the theater district, maybe. And been like, you <laughs> yeah, know, maybe. Yeah. During restaurant week or yeah, something. Yeah, we have a box seat to Phantom of the Opera where a murder happens this week. That's what we need. Yeah, or that something. would have been fantastic. <laughs> but yeah. in the final act, so this way you get to see the whole thing. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about Malcolm a little bit, the character. So he has some very specific talents and skills, as well as some very specific hobbies. So can you tell us about any kind of research that you did into criminal profile? filing or serial killers or even antique weapons <laughs> <laughs> well i think there are lots of um i mean we're flooded with serial killer documentaries and and um movies and tv shows and so there's a lot of that uh, material to watch on even like on netflix or on hulu or any of the streaming services it's very easy to pick up and play with any of these um serial killer things and i think we all have that fascination and problem solving aspect of our brains so that's really just about the fascination that Malcolm has with solving people's psychology, you know, as an actor, that's pretty much what we do. So that side of it was kind of came pretty naturally to me. Then at its heart, it's a father and son story. It's a family drama. Um, There was a podcast called Smiley Face, which I listened to, which probably helped me the most because it was directly relatable. It's following a, a woman who is the daughter of a serial killer as she goes and meets relatives of his victims and talks about growing up with him as her father. And that was really valuable because it's really about how the world considers you and how you have been tainted by this person. It's like being George Clooney's son or Brad Pitt's son, but then that person is a murderer and not a movie star. So everyone knows you as, and I've, I've known people who have very famous parents and it's a very difficult um, way to grow up uh, anyway, but to have that person be someone who has, drastically affected other people's lives in such a horrible way that reflects on you and and in the podcast you she would talk to people who had said like i wanted to do to you what your father did to my mother and like all these things it was like oh it's God. really intense but you can you can understand it and of and course. then that's what the whitley family 
have lived with and that's what Malcolm has lived with and and he's continually paying a penance for what his father did while he was a child and that's that's really tough and so that was really the main thing that podcast really helped me and then and just all of these questions like we all have these relationships with our parents where certain things are left unsaid or like there are questions that you really like to know the answer to but are afraid to ask or conversations that are just too awkward to have and all of that exists in every family and certainly exists in this one but then it has all these other things on top of it and uh, so there are certain parts of me it's very easy like I don't go in thinking oh that's my dad in front of me but you can't help but I have a very strong imagination and they can't help but be crossover when I'm in a scene and I'm talking to someone and using the word dad or referring to family situations. It's quite easy for me to kick into that side of my emotional life. And that obviously helps with the, with the, with the character. They, they're, they're universal situations, except right. they're just ramp, ramped up a lot. Yeah, there's a really interesting dynamic to this, this family relationship. Yeah, but I think that's one of the things that people have seized on upon the show because it goes beyond just the crime of the week. Because there is such a strong serialized family drama aspect to it, I, I think people because it's relatable. You know, even though we were talking yeah. about fantastical crimes, you know, and such unique crimes of the week, and you're also talking about like the serial killer family relationship, there are family themes that everyone can hold on to. Absolutely, you know. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we could probably spend three hours worth of asking you questions about. Malcolm's arc over the two seasons. But in, in, in interest of time, and I'm sure you have other things to do, let's just focus on the last few episodes that we've gone through as we've come to the end of season two. As a general matter, can you describe kind of the reaction when you opened up these scripts and you saw how this back end of the season was playing out? Because you've, you've been on the ride, obviously, the entire time, seeing mm. Martin get out and what that was going to do for Malcolm and kind of how he's been having this slow breakdown over these last couple of episodes, feeling very lost, not being able to find his father just the general reaction to reading those scripts and, and knowing that you're going to play all this out over the last three four episodes well i think the show is strongest when things are tied in with the family and and, it, and everything you know the cases inform malcolm's progression in his emotional and psychological life and and how it informs his family relationships and i think in these last few episodes it really is the zenith of that and you're you're coming really to the core of what matters to Malcolm and why he does what he does and how in control he actually is. You know, we've had like with, when Alan Cumming was on the show, we had kind of a spy versus spy uh, episode, which was really, really fun. And uh, in these episodes, we've got a kind of killer versus killer with Martin being uh, kidnapped basically. And, and then where does Malcolm lie on that spectrum? Like if he wasn't, if he had no relationship to either of those people, then he would see it in a completely different way to how he sees it in the episode. Whereas one of these people is his father, his emotional gut reaction uh, is what takes over really. Um, he knows what the right thing is to do and what should happen. And, but at the end of the day, it's his father and that, and it's, I mean, we've seen it from both of them as well, that we've seen it from um, Martin Whitley and Malcolm, the moments when the father or the son is threatened and how that affects the other person. It's great. I mean, that's when you get these gut responses that really show you what fundamentally matters to those characters. And, and, you know, we also had Jessica putting down the phone and not caring 
And that's something that Malcolm doesn't really know about yet. And and that's more of a thought out thing. Yeah, she certainly makes a choice yeah. in this episode. And and I mean, her gut, she made up her mind a long time ago and that's it, you know. There's a great conversation I want to play. This is a clip from the beginning, actually, of tonight's episode between you and uh, between Malcolm and Danny. Because uh, then I want to talk about it. I can't live like this. Knowing he's out there somewhere. He could come for me at any time. That's not what scares you. What scares you is living the rest of your life without your father in it. That one little dialogue, that back and forth, really en- encompasses a lot of what we've seen Malcolm wrestling with since he got out, since since he left the chessmaster's house and saw the look on Danny's face and realized the surgeon was mm. gone. Th- this idea, he seems very torn, you know, like he, he understands that Martin is this killer that should be behind bars or in Claremont, but also he loves his father and, and he seems to be really wrestling with that. Is, is that something that you were picking up on the pages and, and, and really bringing to life or was that on the pages and you're just kind of playing it as, uh, as it was kind of written? Is, is that something you're, you're playing into it? I think at this point we, we know the characters well enough that the emotion, the emotional journey is present. Like, and it, it's kind of obvious um, how the characters feel about certain things. And I'm, pretty much pretty in tune with Malcolm and how he would approach different situations. But I think what's interesting about that conversation is that Malcolm doesn't have Martin in a place where he knows where he is and he can, he can have any kind of considered relationship with him because Malcolm still has lots of unfinished business and lots of questions and emotional problems that he needs to work through, but he's completely lost control now. And if Martin is out there in the world, then he, he might never see him again. And that's very scary to him as well. Like, I mean, I think that's one of his scary things is if Martin was killed or if you ran away and never spoke to him again, there are problems with Malcolm in his emotional, psychological life that he will never fully resolve, Right, he thinks. So that's really him dying. If, if Martin Whitley died, that's a big problem for a lot of different reasons for Malcolm and his progression as a person, um, because he will never get answers to certain things because Martin is the only person that knows the answers to certain questions that will help Malcolm uh, make progress. So whether he's going to disappear forever or whether a U.S. Marshal is going to shoot him. Um, both of those are big problems that Malcolm needs to stop from happening. There's this great conversation where Malcolm and Martin have earlier in, in the season, and it's actually what gives birth to Martin's idea that he needs to escape, you know, for my boy. And yeah. it, it's ab- <laughs> about about how Malcolm had finally learned uh, learned to accept that he was the surgeon's son. And because of that, he can close him off and kind of excise yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's true, and I think he did a good job of that uh, for the most part throughout the season. You, you even went through the surgeon cleanse there for a little bit where you were cutting him yeah. off completely. But I think a lot of that was based on the fact because he knew where Martin really was. And, exactly. And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems very untethered now that he's out. One thing we've noticed in the last couple of episodes, we've talked about it every week, the last few weeks, is Malcolm always, when speaking about Martin Whitley professionally, always referred to him as the surgeon, whether he was talking to mm-hmm. Gil and JT and mm-hmm. Danny or the marshals. And the last few episodes, it's not been the surgeon. It's been my father. And in this episode, it's my father and Martin. I mean, he calls Martin Martin a lot in this episode, not the mm-hmm. surgeon. Is, is Are we reading it right that he's blurring the lines or and or losing kind of the thread of what the job is here? Yeah, I think so. I think this, the when he 
spoke to him uh, and referred to him as the surgeon, that's a very calculated thing. It's a protection for himself mm-hmm. and also not allowing his father to see anything more than, you know, a black and white relationship of you're this monster and I'm going to refer to you as this monster. But then there have been moments where he's said dad or he's, you know, said, uh, he, I mean, he's been, he's had Dr. Whitley for a while and all these different, different names. It's funny, actually, we did a scene. God, I can't remember which scene it was. It was, it, I think it was within the last few episodes. And uh, I referred to myself as Malcolm Whitley. And um, the script supervisor was like, oh, you're Malcolm Bright. And I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. Like, I really like, yeah. and it was an emotional scene. And I can't remember what it was, but it came out of me in that, like, I'm Malcolm Whitley. Like, I'm related to this man. And But for reasons of story and, and the script and stuff, we, we decided to keep it as Malcolm Bright. And so he's still holding on to that. But underneath that, he is Malcolm Whitley. And he knows that his father is Dr. Martin Whitley and that they're related. I mean, it's underneath everything. So there is this thin veil on top where he's trying to hold on to control but underneath everything is it's his dad and they have the same name and everything else is artifice on top of that and to really understand their problems and to get through them he has to come to terms with that really and and i think own it uh, at some point he will have to own up to the fact publicly that he is who he is to his father and to the world, I think. There's this great uh, exchange between you and Catherine or Malcolm and uh, Vivian. At the end of the episode, I, I have a clip here to play. Oh, Malcolm came with me willingly. Why did you do that? Don't you share the popular opinion about Martin Luther? Of course I do. He's a psychopath. An unrepentant murderer. Then why are you here? Who else gets willingly takes a pill to get knocked out and get into a car? It's what you do for family. You know, he, <laughs> he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't do that for another serial killer. If it was the junkyard killer, he wouldn't be yeah, surrendering himself, you know, and it's it's true. It's this reckoning. It's for as the episode went on, it becomes more and more about him trying to get his father. It seemed like than yeah, catching yeah. or recapturing the surgeon. No, absolutely. I mean, that's th- those two lines are just the center of the show, really. Right. He's this hor- horrible, awful person, but he's also my father. I mean, that's the show. <laughs> that's Prodigal Son. When she says, then why are you here? I mean, it's, yeah, why are you here? <laughs> I mean, there's a, a million people asking that question right now. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then everyone else is like, oh, we get it. Dad. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the center of the show. It really is. And th- that I means the way that you deliver that line, it was like a gut punch. It was really, really just very powerful. Kudos mm-hmm. on that. But we do have to discuss the Malcolm and Danny, the kiss that happens here tonight. Mm -hmm. So we talk every week about how this show, the writing is so clever and the writing is so well done and how good a job the showrunners have done, the writers have done in growing the relationship between these two so organically from being friends to being partners to being something more than that. Talk to us a little bit about how this season long war between Malcolm's conscious and his subconscious about whether Malcolm can open up and trust Dan. Um, well, I think on the face of it, I mean, I've, when all this is happening and I'm, I'm saying to the showrunners, like, oh, please don't give him any more like emotional trauma. And like, I don't think, you know, because the last girl that he got involved with was murdered. So I think that's like... I was defending not, Malcolm. I'm like, this is too much for him emotionally. Yeah, I'm like, I, don't, I just don't know if this is a good choice for him. And it's not like it's a calculated choice. Like he, it's a, an, an impulsive moment when he really needs that closeness and... 
out of anyone in his life, Danny is the closest to him, regardless of uh, if she's a girl or a boy or, or whatever. Like, she's the closest person to him, I think. And they've had the most, like, heart-to-hearts and understanding each other conversations. And certainly in that moment, it's a very high-pressure moment. And, and also, everyone, it seems at this point, has been in his ear about Danny. Like everyone who's been talking to him about it. And so you couldn't help but feel that like his subconscious is being pushed into it anyway, because yeah, everyone's telling me that this is a thing and maybe it's a thing. So I think, and and I mean, all he wants is someone who understands him and that he can be emotionally open with. And, but it's, he's, spent a long time keeping a distance from people because of you know because of the night terrors and because of the people that he involves himself with and the situations he puts himself in because at the end of the day he's a caring person who wants to be the best um that he can be and he doesn't feel like it's healthy if anyone else gets involved in that with that with him with his own psychology i don't think there's going to be any deep and meaningful conversations that are going to happen very soon because uh there's no time um other pressing matters (laughs) <laughs> yeah other pressing matters and i mean that moment happened and then if, and then as soon as it happened malcolm was off doing something else and getting kidnapped and now he's on the run so <laughs> it's like a whole whole crazy situation that's happened and uh but i think it will definitely be returned to there will definitely be conversations that happen down the line but i don't think even if danny did come back and they met each other in the storage unit again i'm not sure they'd be sitting down and having a massive heart to heart um, because there would still be other things going on in the background. I think it would just be pretty, they would definitely have a conversation, but it would be still a bit awkward between them and like, okay, we've got to figure out what this means and how we can um, work on this. But uh, as is always the case, other things are involved and we'll see where it ends up. When it comes down to where Malcolm's mind is at, do you think that his hesitancy along the way to do anything more with Danny up until this point stems from a worry that he has about maybe her walking away from Malcolm if she knew the dark Mm. truths that he's hiding? Or is it more that he's worried about her safety? I think it's kind of both. I think, I think, like I said, I think he's scared about anyone really getting close to him. But yeah, I think, and I mean, the Endicott thing is always there as well. And like, if she finds out about that, what does that mean? And yeah, because he's supposed to be working with the police, but he does do uh, things which are slightly off, off the beaten track. Um, it's blurring those lines again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and she's a cop at the end of the day. Do you think the the kiss that happened here does it change how Malcolm sees a relationship between them? I think so. I think he will have had a realization through the kiss and and what it means. Right, because there was something on the other side of it too, right? There was something yeah, on the yeah, other yeah. side. Definitely. But then, Classic Malcolm, though. They'll go running off as soon as he kisses yeah. her, though. Yeah. And, like, yeah. Well, a few in seconds, fairness, so did she. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They both literally ran away from the right. moment. But yeah, to be fair, Gil, Gil was buzzing her, though, with like the most dad timing ever. Gil, of course, calls during that moment. Always Gil calling. Always. Did you always have a sense of where this was going? Because, again, ever since the, the episode in in the first season where you want, you go undercover and you have that great cocaine scene at that episode where you go undercover with Danny and we kind of learn about her past a little bit and, and that she's also a little damaged from her, you know, her past. They've really spent a lot of time investing in the friendship. So did this seem inevitable to you to get to this moment? And I ask because there are a lot of people out there who are still pulling for Malcolm and Adresa to get together. You know, they're, they're, oh, be, yeah. people want Malcolm with all sorts of people. So I'm curious where your your idea was where this relationship was going to go. I mean, I think it, that kind of dynamic always exists in these 
kind of shows and uh, you always want some kind of interest <laughs> around the corner. I think that we were just seeing where it, where it went as well and, and what people responded to. And uh, and it, people seem to really like that relationship. But yeah, people like the Idrisa relationship as well. But now she's got a boyfriend, so... <laughs> she's Please! <laughs> But yeah, from I mean that was episode four of season one. So yeah, yeah there was some groundwork being laid then. Uh, but I just think that Malcolm is just so all over the place. I mean, he's just not capable of being able to um, be conscious of any romantic relationship. I think, and I think uh, he got surprised by the relationship in the first season. And um, if anything, that would have scared him off more. And I think that's why he was kind of reluctant to get involved with Danny. But then in this episode, he just his uh, impulses take over. Danny does have it going for her that she knows how to use a gun and probably can fent his night terror and, and hallucinations off a little bit easier than most. So yes, that's, that's, probably, that's, that's, true. that's definitely a plus in her uh, dating profile. <laughs> so Malcolm has a strong sense of duty and justice to, and, and to being honest with Gil and the team. So talk to us a little bit about his brain, this idea at the end of the episode where he comes to after Martin fixes the embolism and he says, they're going to kill you. You have to run. Is mm-hmm. that a really difficult, choice for him to voice out loud because he's letting the bad guy get away he knows he's going to be letting down danny and gill and everyone else uh and maybe even proving them right that he was never more than a mouthpiece for the surgeon you know making excuses for the surgeon is that a difficult choice or is it at that point it's my father and that's my main concern here is that he lives i mean i think in that room in that moment it's just those two so it, it just comes down to their relationship really and he is afraid that he doesn't want his father to get shot and killed for the reasons I mentioned earlier on. Like he, he wants his father to be alive and to be available for conversation and some kind of relationship. So I think that really comes from his gut. And he knows, like going way back to the pilot of the of the show, um, that first serial killer that Malcolm met, that sheriff just came in and shot him and killed him and was like, I'm the hero, I shot him, I killed him. And he knows that that can happen, you know, and like some, somebody comes in and is some errant cop comes in and shoots him and because they want to be the hero who shot the surgeon. So he knows that there's always danger there and he would rather, you know, he, it's, it's a control thing as well. He wants, he's obviously completely incapacitated and can't control the situation. So he thinks that the best thing to do is, is just to tell him to run because who knows what's, what's coming in the front door. But now telling him to run is one thing, maybe waking up in a speedboat and realizing that you were now on the run with your father is something else. Yeah. Without revealing too much of what we may or may not see next week's finale, speculate for us, if you could, would Malcolm be happy to be on the run with his father to, to be dragged along for that mission? Or is that a step too far in, in this plan? I don't think it's an ideal situation uh, because now he's uh, implicated. But at the same time, at least he knows where he is and he can speak to him and try and persuade him of the right thing to do. In the finale, he finds himself involved in a plan that Martin has and he goes along with the plan and, and he thinks that hopefully at the end of the day, the right thing, the right resolution will happen and and uh, everything will get wrapped up. It doesn't necessarily go exactly the way that he thought it would. And Martin is Martin Whitley out in the world, which which is an entirely different thing. And Martin has decided how he's going to present himself to the world. And the, the finale is lots and lots of different things at once, which the show is. So, so there are moments of high comedy and then there are moments of horror and there are shock. I mean, it's just everything that makes the show the show is in the finale, which is really um, 
exciting and fun to play. And I think it's really firing on all cylinders. Um, but yeah, it's not the ideal situation for Malcolm. But at the same time, if he had just run off and Malcolm had no idea where he was, that's almost worse. So actually, it's better that they're together. Um, but it's totally unexpected. He absolutely did not expect that. <laughs> it's, it's always interesting, too, of when Malcolm tries to play the game of whether or not he can control his father. Like, he certainly understands mm-hmm. Martin, but I, I always worry that he overestimates his ability to control him. And yeah, then, yeah. Yeah, I think, I, so they, yeah. I think it's a big question mark about him being out in the wild about how much control he'll be able to exercise over Martin. So something to look mm-hmm. forward to. Yeah, definitely. No, he's, he tries. <laughs> So, Tom, you're the ambassador for the show in many ways. And one of the perks seems to be that you get to shoot with all of the great guest stars and all the new faces this season. So what was it like shooting with Catherine Zeta-Jones and Alan Cumming? Fantastic. I mean, I mean, it's a... I'm really proud of the fact that we've created a show that is um, entertaining and and gives people a platform that they want to join us on and like and come and come and play a character on our show. I mean, it says a lot, I think, that we've managed to create a show that actors want to come and work on and actors of that caliber. Um, it's really exciting. And it was one of the things that I really wanted to establish on the show. And I've heard from actors who've joined us that they had been told, oh, yeah, it's great. The crew are really nice. The cast are really nice. You'll have a really good time. And that's how we've got these amazing people. We, I mean, we have great actors on our show as well, which is obviously a, a big attraction um, for people to come and um, make some magic with us. And yeah, I, I'm just I'm, I'm just really proud of that, actually. I'm, I'm really happy that we've managed to achieve that. And then that, I mean, Alan, <laughs> Alan came in and just had the time of his life. Like it was just so fun. Like that episode was just so bonkers and and fun. And 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 that's the other thing that I love about the show is that we've made this show that can handle any kind of performance and any kind of genre that we want to go down. And uh, you know, at, at, at times, like it, it's almost like we're in different shows, but we're not. We're in this one show that holds together really well and everyone has these strong relationships with each other and it can handle all of these different these different performances and so you have alan coming in you have catherine who's doing this like film noir thing at times and (laughs) it's just so awesome and 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 so great and uh yeah i mean it's it's such a coup for us to get um catherine and alan and i mean it says a lot about the show i think and i'm really proud that we've managed to create a show that has people want to come and have fun with the song. You know, when we talked to Christian Borrell last week and Michael Potts earlier in the, oh, in the season, yeah, yeah, th- that's what they said. They said, everyone is just so nice. They're all so professional, yeah. but they're also like tightly knit and everyone is just so nice. Great. They said it was just really a, a great experience. It was very welcoming on the set. On top of all the weirdness with COVID, you know, you guys made it um, yeah. really, really good for them. Yeah, that added a whole other aspect. It's, it's really frustrating. Like normally when we would have a guest actor on, I go and say hi in the makeup room and welcome to the show. And, and I still manage to do that, but it's just not as free and easy and you can't be quite as welcoming as you want to. So it did put a certain barrier, but it just means that you have to be, you have to like be even more so when, when you finally take the masks off and like before you're acting, it's like, oh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us. And I'm so happy that you're here. And, and I mean, Christian had such a good time. And, I, and Michael, like, we have these people who come in for, like, a few scenes who are just so awesome. And it was just so – it was also brilliant that we were providing work in New York because there are so many actors who are out of work who were, would normally be working on Broadway or in the theatre scene, and that's just completely shut down. So I was really happy with the fact that we managed to get going and keep it going and, and 
get people in employment. That was a really, a really important thing for us as well. But yeah, I mean, the fact that we've managed to make a television show during this time in New York, when, when New York was so dark at the beginning, like March last year, when it was all really kicking off, New York was not a fun place to be. And so yeah, we're it was both nice in to New be York. able to, oh, you are. Yeah, yeah. it was, uh, I mean, we got shut down in March last year and it was really like, literally like the lights were being turned off right. around us. Yeah. Right, it was like right. Everything was like, so insane like everything just started shutting down like all the sports and the broadway and and everything and all the and shows were starting shutting down and it was a really crazy time and so to be part of bringing everything back and turning the lights back on was a real real honor and, and i'm really happy that we were able to do that and then get some great actors to come in i mean it actually it served us really well as well because we had a lot of actors who were trapped in new york <laughs> they couldn't travel anywhere else so we're like oh we can get these great actors because they're available because they're not on broadway right now and um, and they have to stay in new york so it was actually um you had a captive audience basically we did we did and it meant that because sometimes last year we were casting people very late um but due to covid protocols we had to cast people a bit earlier this year so it was great actually because we we were a bit more stable with with getting people on and and getting really great people to come join us so um yeah, it was right. Really exciting. Christian joked that the thing that drew him to the role of Friar Pete the most was a paycheck during COVID <laughs> oh, times yeah. and the ability to be employed no during doubt. COVID times. You know, <laughs> it was very funny. I have no doubt. And then the bonus on top is that they gave him a lot of fun stuff to do. And oh, so my he Lord. Was, yes. He was in heaven. I was drinking wine in a bowling alley last week. You can't beat that. So. <laughs> oh, I love that scene. Love that scene. <laughs> he was furious. Uh, yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, so for any lesser show, uh, you know, uh, ending tonight's episode with Where the Streets Have No Name, queuing up on the soundtrack with you and Martin driving away in a speedboat is is season finale cliffhanger stuff. But Prodigal Son's like, no, no, that was just the penultimate episode. We still have a whole hour left for you. So if you can, without being too spoilery, describe next week's finale in three words okay first of all i think you ha- you might have to reframe that question when you air because i think the music has changed at the oh end. are they changing it okay well in the screener anyway and it's fantastic and i wish they would leave it in in the screener anyway but, it was where they, she said honestly it. what they have now is amazing and better, oh yeah and Ooh, better, I, I love that it's better yeah, yeah you'll see um the finale okay so um three words tease it out Okay, so I want to go from the beginning to the end. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, yeah, but I wonder if I'd like find interesting words. But I guess, oh, okay, quirky. <laughs> All right. <laughs> quirky, horror, and sudden. Ooh. Wow. And then you'll completely get it, get it when you see the finale. But uh, yeah, those are good. Those are good words. Quirky, horror, sudden. We could have stayed here for six days, and I don't think I would have come up with quirky as, as yeah. a guess oh, that, that I would have used. You will completely understand. When you see. <laughs> it. uh, it's so fun. I, that's what I mean. Like The last episode encapsulates everything about our show. It has everything in there. Like it's got really funny moments and really shocking moments and really emotional moments. It's, it's just got everything. I actually haven't seen the cut yet, but I, I should be seeing it very soon, and I'm really excited because... Um, it's just it's just our show in an episode, so it's great. The show finished filming last week. We fans got to see some great photos and videos from the cast on the final day, like last day of school, everybody with their arms around each other. Mm-hmm. Can you take us behind the scenes and tell us some stories or feelings from shooting those final episodes, please? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... Quirky, horror, sudden, got yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, as you can imagine, like, a lot, well, hang on, let me think what happens. What was the last stuff I shot? Oh, because so we shot um, slightly out of order because Michael had to go back to England to do uh, to do another job. And so we ended up shooting the last two episodes together, pretty much. The last stuff I shot was actually stuff from episode 12, um, which was nice because it was everyone, you know, there was it was more than just me and Michael. Uh, which well, actually there is more than me and Michael in the, the finale as well. But anyway, anyway, uh, the last stuff I got to shoot was um, was uh, at the police station, which was really nice. Um, and uh, it was just a scene in, in a place that we've done a bunch of scenes. And it was a really weird day because I've done thousands of COVID tests at this point. Your poor nose. Yeah, you know, but you get used to it. But I'd never come up positive and I and and just just like tiny bits of stress it is involved in that each day because who knows you might come up positive and and then we're really screwed if i come up positive basically right Um, right so on that last day that last day i got my final negative and i like yelled out in joy and then and went to um i'm getting a bit emotional thinking about it now i went down to set and uh you know just kind of powered through the last scene because as much as last year was a marathon of like 20 episodes and getting through that this year was just like, please, God, let's get through the season without having to shut down and without me getting sick. And we and we did it and we got to the end and I and I wasn't sick, uh, amazingly. And um, and we managed to finish and I managed to finish. And it was weird because actually I finished like five days or four days earlier before the end of the season because we had shot a lot of stuff previously with Michael. So I was able to go in and just you know, be there for other people's last days and stuff, which was really nice. Um, and I stayed to the end and yeah, I mean, it was just, it's like a battle. Like it was, it was like we were battling COVID this whole time and we had our ups and downs, but we got to the end of it. And, and, and I'm so happy that this wasn't the first season. Like we knew everyone and we know, we know each other so well at this point. And we, and like I said earlier on to have provided employment for 250 people and their families and to be feeding the economy of New York really meant a lot to me and, and to all of us. And so it was really emotional. Those last few days were really emotional. And, and honestly, I did, I wasn't even thinking about like, Oh, I'm, who knows about season three and maybe we won't see each other. I, I didn't think about any of those things. It was just about getting through the season and, and we did it. And, uh, and it was such an achievement for me and, and having put together a season that I'm really proud of. And I feel like we really made our show and we made it better. I think, I think we, you know, we zeroed in on what makes the show uh, the best that it can be. And cause we weren't doing 20 episodes. We were, we only had 13 and we knew we had 13. Right. We were able to really concentrate on making them the best that they could be. And um, so, yeah, the last week or so was, was pretty weirdly emotional and yeah, but, but so a, a real sense of achievement, I think for everyone. And it's so weird that, I mean, the show, it finishes airing in two weeks. Like, it's kind of crazy. Then it's all over um, for this season. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. We started airing, I guess, I think we were on episode eight. And we we still had five to shoot. And and then... The, the air dates are catching up with you. But I'm really proud of what we did. And, and um, yeah, I love my prodigal son family. <laughs> oh, we love you guys, too. <laughs> and before we say goodbye to you, is there anything that people could be looking forward to watching you in and coming up? Do you have any projects going on during hiatus uh, during your summer? Uh, it's just, just so exhausting doing this show. That's, that's the other thing. <laughs> of, like, 
for me playing the lead on a show it's so different to being just in the ensemble and you're just so exhausted i used to wonder when i when i was growing up watching other people on shows and i was like why do they not do anything else apart from that show right and now i completely understand it's because it's just all consuming so my wife is swedish and i'm english and we would love to get back to europe and see our families because right. i haven't seen my parents in like 18 months at this point and oh and it might be that when we do it like we might still have to quarantine for a couple of weeks even though we've been vaccinated like they might still be doing that so then that eats into the whole time so there's just no time for anything else and if we come back for season three that won't be that far away so i'm open to doing something but it would have to be quite specific i think at this point and now i think it's just about spending time at home and, and decompressing a little bit i mean we drove jennifer and i drove back from new york uh, last week uh, oh, wow. across country which is which is a really nice way to decompress, actually. But we did it really quickly. We left on at 6 p.m. on Friday, and we got in at 8 p.m. on Monday. So we did it really quickly. Oh, wow. yeah. But That's it was fast. motivated. It was really nice. It was relaxing once you left the tri-state area. <laughs> Well, the traffic. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. But driving in the car, like we didn't really, you know, you just get in the car and you drive and yeah. it's really simple. And it's actually like really nice. Like I, I, we, we both really enjoyed it. Actually, we went to Pittsburgh and then Omaha and then Vail and then home. And it was wow. great. And we had driven over previously before. And it, it's just, it's actually a really nice way because if you just do it, if you fly, then you're at the airport with loads of people and then you're on a plane wearing a mask the whole time and yeah. then you land and then suddenly you're at home and you're like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> and it's nice after eight months of shooting to have that time to just, I mean, we didn't even listen to the radio, really. We just kind right. of drove in silence, silence. and like, you know, <laughs> chatted silence. at times. But yeah, and you could just throw everything in the car and you have everything you need and yeah, it was, that was actually a really nice way to decompress. And um, so we'll see. We'll see what comes next. We'd be remiss if we didn't compliment you on being so productive during COVID as to getting married. I mean, yes, I, I'm, still, I, I'm still trying to get a, a jigsaw puzzle done, like a 200-piece jigsaw puzzle done, and you went and got married. So congratulations on that. Well, it was time. We were supposed to get married last April in New York, oh. um, which is probably the worst timing ever. Right. Um, and so then we, we postponed, and, and we postponed to this April, and then we realized, oh, shit, that's not going to happen either so then i had the two weeks off for christmas and it was my birthday on the 21st of december as well and um jennifer just said hey why don't we just do it on your birthday and so we, we just wanted to get on with our lives we're just like hey we wanted to do this thing and we want to like move on to the next stage of everything and like we're not going to let this you know hold us back and really the main reason for the wedding was just to have a party sure. like, to have all of our friends there like that's that's really it like have people from sweden and england and america like all come together and and have a good time and it wasn't really i mean obviously it's about us getting married but at the same time that was the main thing about that so we're going to do that next year um, and have a big party. But by that time, we'll have been married for a bit. So that'll be nice. That's nice. fantastic. That's fantastic. Tom, thank you so much for uh, all the time you spent with us today. I know we held you over much longer than uh, than you were supposed to go, and I really appreciate it. And thank you for giving us so much to talk about and for bringing Prodigal Son into our house every uh, week for the last two years. It's been, it's been a real ride, and we've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for watching. I'm glad you enjoyed it. We've really enjoyed making it. And hopefully we'll be making some more soon. Yeah, I mean, well, honestly, we... we, we we have, we're holding the door open for you to come back for season three and talk to us some more. So that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. And enjoy the finale and the, and the penultimate episode. And we'll see you on social media. Where can people find you on? Uh, on I know you Twitter a lot. Do you know your Twitter handle? <laughs> I'm on Twitter as, as uh, just an actor and I'm on Instagram as the T-Pain. 
So definitely give Tom a follow. He has a great account and interacts with fans all the time. So definitely worth uh, yes. following there and watch along with us with the finale next week. Thank you so much. Man, what a good interview with Tom. I just want to thank him again for being so gracious with his time and so wonderfully thoughtful with his answers. You could hear him really thinking carefully about how to answer all the questions and really put the best information forward on Malcolm and on Prodigal Son. I'm so excited to hear more of, uh, to see how his three-word description of the finale play out. Quirky, horror, sudden. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, expect a tweet of that uh, sometime. Probably about the time that you're listening to this, you should be seeing tweets about us talking about it. Quirky Horror Sudden, which I think he settled on, is chronological to the episode next week. So, man, really exciting stuff. I just want to thank him. Again, thank Fox uh, for helping us arrange all these great interviews that you've been listening to all season long. It's been fantastic. Uh, no Adresa's corner tonight because there's no Adresa, but hopefully we get her back next week. I really, I agree with you. I think for the finale, we have to see the good doctor, uh, Adresa show up again. Yeah. What, what's your best finale theory? Give, give me whatever you're thinking about, Sheila. What, what do you have <sighs> cooking in that brain of yours for next week's finale? So, you know, just watching this penultimate episode, and, you know, we talked about it in the interview with Tom that like any, lesser show not to diminish other shows but this would have been the perfect season finale cliffhanger to leave it where it is so seeing as how they have one more hour to go i'm like wondering like are they gonna go out with a bang and do like a tony soprano to martin in the season finale which is like another excellent use of music to ratchet up the tension and like the drama to an inconclusive end so I, that's one theory that I've got. So like either the show like ends with Martin like meeting like a choose your ending kind of cliffhanger or somehow Malcolm outsmarts the cops and Martin is set free by Malcolm. I just think we're past Martin returning to Claremont. I think that's like out the window. So I'm trying to like noodle around like where else they could go with this. I mean, I, I see your point about has too much happened for Martin to return to Claremont. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I don't want to be in a world where Martin is out free. That is a dangerous, dangerous world. I don't think I want to be in that world. I, I like Malcolm. I want to have a relationship with Martin, but I want it to be in Claremont where I know where he is at all times. You know, and so that that's the relationship I want everyone to have with Martin. And so I hope he gets put back in Claremont. You know, there's all sorts of real world concerns that, you know, people, if you if you're on the Internet, if you if you know about the show, I mean, I think Tom even brings it up in our interview. The, the show has to rearrange its schedule and shooting schedule a lot because of Michael Sheen's schedule and the amount of jobs that he's booking and he and he returns to Wales and to England often. You know, there's something to be said and I'm sure he's expensive. So there's real world concerns about does Martin die? Does Martin die to sacrifice himself for Malcolm? When the show was up for renewal for season two, one of the things that took so long was Michael Sheen's schedule and and the way it affects production and the costs associated with that and the way they have to shoot episodes to work around that you know there's a lot going on there i mean and none of that is show related but that's just real world tv related so there's a part of me that if martin dies in the finale as a way of saving malcolm if the show doesn't get renewed, well, that's some kind of poetic justice for the end of that father-son relationship. If the show does get renewed, maybe Michael Sheen not being part of the cast anymore is one of the things that helps make that happen. And that sets Mar- that sets Malcolm up 
off on this whole new road of discovering who he is when the surgeon isn't alive. You know, who is Malcolm if the Mar- if Martin isn't alive inside Claremont? There's a lot of possibilities, uh, storytelling, narratively, as well as real world business reasons why you kill off Martin. You know, it, maybe Claremont isn't enough anymore for to hold Martin. So maybe Martin has to die uh, storytelling wise. I, I really don't know. I'm, I, I am trying to go into the finale like I do all finales with a totally open mind because I think it's just more exciting that way. I don't want to I don't want any aspect of me watching the episode be tainted by what my predictions were. I'm just worried I because I, I just I, I'm so invested in these characters and I'm like, I, you know, Martin yes, he's a terrible person, but we've come to love him over... For sure! I'm a big Martin seasons. fan. I mean, after Malcolm, Martin is definitely my favorite character on the show because I, I I just find him so charismatic. I find him so charming. I find him very funny. And I also love his brain. I love the way he thinks, the same mm-hmm. way that I love Malcolm's brain, and I love the way Malcolm thinks. I like how they view the world. Not that I agree with necessarily how they view the world, but it, I find it very interesting to listen to how they view the world. I think it would be a big loss for the show to not have martin whitley on it to not have michael sheen i think he is a large part of what makes this show this show i just think there's also a lot of narrative and real world reasons why that may come out that way but i don't even want to put that down i really don't even want to put that out in the universe for comparable reasons and i don't want that to be my prediction but that's definitely something that's rattling around in the back of my brain did you do your jonas sock homework it's really quick. Like I can't, I oh, couldn't sure. find like one quick through line. But Jonas Salk, when he introduced this polio vaccine, was basically shunned by the scientific community. There, there was, you know, there was jubilation that polio was basically on its way to being eradicated. But the scientific community really didn't share in his belief. There, there was some talk about his methods and and you know working with children and things like that. Also, when he was elevated into the stratosphere of fame, his wife could not take the celebrity status and ended up divorcing him. And he had a really strained relationship with his three kids. Interesting. Mm. Oh, so there's some parallels. So there does seem to be maybe some reasons why Martin picked old Mr. Salk, Dr. Salk for, uh, for his uh, nom de bank account. So... Look at me, like, trying to find a way to connect a serial killer to a, a world-renowned humanitarian scientist. I love okay. it. I'm, I'm all here for the research. <laughs> and I did it in under a minute. Uh, anyway, so here's your warning. And if you're into it, well, listen, because we're going to tell you next week's episode title, and we're going to read to you the description, which is very short. Next week's finale is called The Last Weekend. Right off the bat, I got to tell you, I'm not liking the use of the word last. I don't like that word in any way related to Prodigal Son. No, no, no. Let's not call it The Last Weekend, people. Not a fan. Uh, Here is the description for next week's episode, The Last Weekend. The search for a serial killer known as The Woodsman might help the NYPD find one of their own. So in our finale, it looks like we're getting a murder of the week case uh, and uh, a serial killer called The Woodsman. That's pretty interesting that that's what they're doing in the finale. Super curious how that may all be connected. Maybe that's the place where they think that Martin is going to take Malcolm. 
maybe whatever the connection is to the woodsman, if there is a connection between the woodsman and the surgeon, uh, because Martin, it can't be on the speedboat going off to, you know, the horizons forever. He and has headed to Dublin where the streets have no name, right? He has to be going somewhere. So maybe he's going somewhere connected to this woodsman and the NYP, presumably the one of their own that's missing is, uh, is Malcolm, even though he's not technically NYPD, which everyone is always quick to point out. Um, NYPD adjacent. Yes. <laughs> But uh, I don't know. It's going to be a fun ride. So I hope you guys join us next week to listen to our coverage of Prodigal Son Season 2 finale. Uh, and I just want to thank you guys uh, for listening and for making us one of the most listened to podcasts in the country. It regularly is ranking in the United States and Canada and Britain and around the world. And that's all because of you. So thank you so, so much. And thank you for, you know, making the unofficial official uh, Prodigal Son podcast so popular. Uh, if you can head to Apple Podcasts and remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're available everywhere. If you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic. So Apple Podcasts notices us and likes us. And that way we don't have to, you know, paralyze your legs and then tie you to a bed and 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 torture you a little bit. We don't want to do that. weird stuff into you. Yeah, don't make us play a game of of uh, fentanyl or not. Uh, we, we don't want to play that game with you, but we will if we have to. Leave us a five-star rating, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Pod Clubhouse and decorating the set from Hollywood to your home with Beth Kushnick are pleased to announce our Frontline Workers Hero Appreciation Contest. Running from now until May 19th, the rules for the contest are simple. We want you to nominate the Frontline Worker Hero in your life and tell us why. That's it. That's all you have to do. The Frontline Worker chosen will win a design consultation with interior designer to the stars and set decorator Beth Kushnick. As well as a gift certificate sponsored by Raymore Flanagan to help put your design ideas into action. To nominate your frontline worker hero, just head to podclubhouse.com and fill out the official contest form. See the post at podclubhouse for all of the official rules and contest information. No purchase or payment is necessary to enter. Void were prohibited by law. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.